Viewer discretion is advised. Nations of Horror. I'm Becky Booth from the UK, and today I'm joined by Mike from Chicago, Illinois, Lucar Dragomir from Atlanta, Georgia, in the US, Anthony Rotolo from Pennsylvania, in the US, Kieran from Glasgow, Scotland, and today we are looking at Sydney J. Fury's The Entity, which was filmed in 1981 and had a worldwide release in 1983. And this is a brilliant study in psychological horror and body horror together, in which Carla Moran, played by Barbara Hershey, is supposedly terrorised and sexually attacked by an unseen entity. Now we're going to touch on the alleged true story, as well as the medical diagnosis of female hysteria, its historical implications and the representation of female neurosis in horror. But first we have a couple of announcements. The first one is that we have some uh, UNH birthdays, don't we? That we do. So in April, everybody's born in April apparently, um, <laughs> Talisha had a birthday, uh, so did Matt, and so did Mac. So happy birthday, everyone. Happy birthday to Happy them. birthday. Yeah, happy Can we day. sing happy birthday? Do we have to <laughs> sing every time there's a birthday? Can we not sing? I vote no singing. <laughs> I know we got a request to sing a while back, but you know. Why? People... Who the hell is requesting that? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who it was, but, you know, to prevent ears from bleeding, I think we should probably not sing Happy Birthday. Yeah. <laughs> well, another fucking year has come and gone. So grab your fucking party hat and put that fucker on. We're going to drink a lot of fucking beer and smoke a lot of fucking pot. And if you're supposed to work tomorrow, better call and tell him to fuck off. Happy fucking birthday to you. Fucking friends are here and your fucking family too. Hope you get some fucking action, fucking drink until you spew. Happy fucking birthday to you. Well, we're gonna go out and hit every fucking bar. All your drinks are on the house, yeah, you're the fucking star. Get all fucking drunk and rowdy. Gonna turn some fucking heads. Gonna party down so fucking hard. We're gonna tear this town to fucking shreds. Happy fucking birthday to you. Fucking friends are here and your fucking family too. Hope you get some fucking action, fucking drink until you spew. Happy fucking birthday to you. I said happy fucking birthday to you. I know it's not very nice to, you know, reveal ages, but I don't think they'll mind if we just say that Talisha's 18, I believe. Matt's 21. And Mac, I think he just turned 69, so it was a big one for him. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> he'll kill me um but also speaking of mac he actually now has a book available on amazon kindle about quatermass um and he obviously hosted the special that we did um a few weeks back on the films and that was brilliant i, I really enjoyed that one and 
yeah, he's brought out a book on the films and the television series, and I've had a bit of a read, and it's brilliant. Has anybody else managed to pick it up? No, yes, I've read a little bit as well, and it's really, really good. I mean, I love Quatermass as well, so you know, I feel like anyone who is interested in the subject matter should definitely pick this up. Yeah, I read a couple of chapters, you know, because I only had a small amount of time between everything I had to do, but it was really good and instantly engaging, so I'm looking forward to finishing it. Definitely me too. And to find it, um, I need to do search on Amazon under Department Kindle using the phrase Quatermass, that's Q-U-A-T-E-R-M-A-S-S, and then Kane, C-A-I-M, to find it. I just bought it with one click. <laughs> He's so oh, efficient. The the beauty of Amazon. <laughs> Amazing. And it's actually under special promotion from the 1st of May to the 5th of May. So you can download it for free during that time with one click. And um, Mark asks that if you do, if you could possibly leave a review if you read some of it and you like it, he'd very much appreciate it. And if you haven't got a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app free for iPhones and Android phones. Then you can download, obviously, the book and... He said you can have a Quatermass reference wherever you go. So I think that's something everyone needs. Yes. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Before we kind of get into the main film for today, um, in terms of what we've been watching, Anthony, you um, caught The Deadly Dream from 1971? Yes. This is a film I screened for my TV write-ups. This was a Lloyd Bridges movie, Lloyd Bridges and Janet Leigh. So we've got some horror royalty in there. Janet Leigh from Psycho, of course. It's a pretty cool film. It's about, it, it's one of those what if propositions where, you know, what if your dream world was actually your reality and your waking life is what was not real? And so it basically is a plot where Lloyd Bridges, you know, every time he goes to sleep, he's being hunted down by these people. There's like a conspiracy of people that are after him and that plot develops every time he goes to sleep. and But when he wakes up, there's always some little artifact or clue that tells him that something about it is real. Like he gets a cut on his wrist in the first dream. And when he wakes up, he's got this cut on his wrist. And, and more than that, he meets a man who's wearing kind of this like weird bracelet that, that, he, that was what he got cut with in like a scuffle. So things like that, they, it keeps progressing, and he's being hounded by these dreams, and it just goes on and on like that. And I, don't, I won't spoil it any further, but look for a review soon. No, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And Kieran, you uh, watched Deadpool? Yeah, yeah, I watched Deadpool like um, recently. It's, I don't really agree with the hype, to be honest. I was expecting it you know, to be like the greatest comic book movie ever. And it wasn't, it was fun, you know, it broke the fourth wall a few times and, you know, it's some like, you know, gore and a couple of funny scenes. But other than that, it was just a fairly basic throwaway piece of entertainment that uh, I don't think I'd watch it again. I could watch it again and be entertained, but yeah, I thought it was like a lesser version of Kick-Ass, just in the sense it was, you know, pretty graphic, it had some subversive humour, but it was just pretty, fairly decent and Throw away. Yeah. I, I would totally agree with that comparison to and, Kick-Ass. You know, I, I liked what it was going for. It's nice to see, like, you know, what a hard R-rated comic book movie. Hopefully it'll like, make way for more. But, you know, I, I'm not really a big fan of them in the first place. 
But so this, and I don't even think this was one of the better ones. And this is, you know, me who doesn't really like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, superhero movies, you know, I love the Punisher and stuff, and then nothing on that whatsoever. But hopefully, you know, it'll make way for maybe a future Punisher movie with, a, you know, a decent budget and some creative freedom. Yeah, I, I hope that too. I, I enjoyed Deadpool, but, you know, I, I just saw it as well, um, actually just yesterday. And, I mean, I, I was kind of of the same thing. Like, it's good. It's It has some really funny parts. Uh, it has some good action. But it's, like, it's nothing just so amazing that's going to blow your mind. It's just, to me, it's just a good comic book movie. Yeah, I, I'm with you there, Kieran. <laughs> yeah, just... You know, I would recommend it, definitely, but, you know, I can't really... I'm not enthused about it. That's, you know, it, it, it's good. It's popcorn entertainment, and that's about it. Did you um, feel the same, Mike, because you wrote a review, didn't you, for UNH? Yeah, uh, I'm basically right there with you guys. I think, uh, Kieran, the word you used was basic, and I kind of agree with that. Hey, it, it's fun. It's funny. It's got some good action, but it just... it's a it manages to still be a really generic origin story it's like i think it it thinks it's more clever than it really is and it's fun but i just thought it was there was a lot of times where i found myself bored and i don't it felt like it was trying to exceed the typical origin trappings but it just kept falling into them i think it's I think it's good. It's a fun movie. I'd recommend it because obviously people like it more than I do or than we do. But yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I've seen a lot of comic book movies, and I mean, really, I think Kickass is a much better, yeah, R-rated kind of comic book movie, yeah. if you will. I, I I prefer like Kingsman if we're going with a goofy oh. rated comic. Oh yeah, Kingsman's yeah, a masterpiece. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, far preferred. I far, far preferred Kingsman. And, you know, yeah. it's no Civil War. <laughs> We're not I going that to see it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about it again, though, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I caught this week, well, I've been watching uh, Vikings, the um, historical drama TV series, um, written and created by Michael Hurst for the television channel History. And... I'm really enjoying it. I'm into the second season now. And it's basically inspired by the kind of tales of the Viking Ragnar Lothbrok, um, one of the kind of legendary Norse heroes who um, basically raided England and France, I think in the 13th century. And it's it's very kind of historically accurate, um, but at the kind of expense of character development, you don't really... Um, kind of spend much time with secondary and um, kind of tertiary characters when you could. And a lot of things aren't explained, um, but I think that's part of the kind of historical, um, you know, like I say, accuracy and facts, and that's just the way things are, which is, it kind of keeps you on your toes. But I'm watching it with my cousin who is a big um, fan of Game of Thrones, and he said that, you know, you have very similar kind of um, characters character dynamics and relationships but the character development in that is so much more pronounced so that does kind of let down a bit I mean the effects are great the action's fantastic it's constantly um you know full of fight scenes and you know the kind of historical aspects of the battles and things are really interesting so I mean I'd recommend it has anybody seen it 
Nope. No. Only commercials. It sounds interesting. I've seen a little bit of Game of Thrones, and I, I wonder if this would be more up my alley, because Game of Thrones has so much hype, and... I mean, I granted, I've only seen probably the first four or five episodes, but I was a little disappointed. So I'm thinking maybe Vikings will sort of kind of fill that medieval void in my life. <laughs> well, definitely, if it's the kind of factual aspect you're looking for, um, as opposed to the kind of fantasy element, then I'd really recommend checking this one out. The mythology aspect and all that I find really interesting and incorporates that really well, but it's obviously very realistic. There's no fantasy element to it. And I kind of really appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, I'd kind of say definitely check it out if anybody's interested. It's on um, Amazon Prime in the UK. That's how I've been uh, watching it. I think it's on like four seasons and they're pretty quick as well. There's not many episodes to them. I like how they're doing that with so many series now, like less episodes, but there's just so much more meat to each episode you know what i mean yeah and it's kind of somebody asked me how violent it was and it's always really hard to judge that question because it's so subjective but you know it's, it's quite gory quite violent um i would say but there's um an episode kind of towards the end of the first series which just floored me it's absolutely harrowing really really floored me um to do with you know paganism and their beliefs and sacrifice but they are making sacrifice themselves nobody's kind of choosing them it's it's really it's not much that kind of turns my stomach you know watching the kind of films we do but it really got me now i'm curious as to what this is yeah i'm, I'm gonna have to <laughs> check it out i'm sure they're on amazon prime probably in the u.s as well i just i don't have amazon prime right now usually it's between netflix or prime for us here uh, Prime's probably better for me at the moment after we've been cut off from uh, US Netflix. Yeah, yeah uh, I hate that for you guys. Yeah. You've got Netflix. It's awful. Yeah, no, really <laughs> is. It's like, it's like, it's like I can tell it's starving to death. That's how it feels. <laughs> I think I would go insane without Netflix because it's just, I don't know, I just rely on it so much now for my entertainment. I mean, we cut off cable here. Because we have Netflix. That and the WWE Network are like the only two things that like, you really need in life now. <laughs> yes, so true. If you got those two things, you need nothing else. <laughs> Luke Had, you watched Hellboy 1 and 2. I did. I really, really, really liked the first film a lot. It reminded me a lot of kind of like Blade, except more like PG-13. I really liked the, the costume of Hellboy. And, you know, this is not a film that I thought I would like. Mrs. Dragomir kept telling me, you really need to watch this. I think you're going to like it. And she's been telling me this for about a year. So finally, over the weekend, we sat down and watched it. And, and yeah, I was really blown away by the first one. This is uh, a Del Toro film. So, you know, usually you're in for something good with his stuff. The second film was not as good, I didn't feel. It had some good action, but I felt like the main villain in the second movie as opposed to the the very strong villain in the first film was not very interesting and i didn't think the comedy was nearly as funny either just all around not as good a film but i really recommend the first hellboy it's it's a lot of fun see i'm the opposite i think the second one's the best and <laughs> really that's not really like <laughs> yeah yeah but no i think a lot of people genuinely do prefer the second but you know it's like totally You're different right. like, 
Is the villain in the first one was definitely better because you know he was a villain. He was evil, and that's how a villain should be. In the second one, he was very sympathetic. You know, you wouldn't. There was moments yes. where he wasn't actually a villain. You could see exactly why he was doing what he was doing. You know, so like, but in this, but the first, like, lean more towards like you know, like PG thirteen action horror, and the second was more like a you know a fantasy. I think that's another thing that didn't appeal to me as much, which, I mean, I do like some fantasy stuff, Lord of the Rings, but that fantasy element, I didn't feel like that went with the theme as much, you know? Del Toro always has to do that with sequels. Between this and Blade 2, he just loves to make part 2s all fantastical and shit. (laughs) Well, I didn't feel like Blade 2 was, like, as much of a, a fantasy stretch as Hellboy 2 well, uh, Yeah, there was no dancing around with elves and no goblin alleys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I'm with you on this, Lucard. I, I, um, and I noticed there's mixed opinion about which is the better of the two Hellboys, but the, um, I like the first one a little bit better. Del Toro being the artist, like you see it even in just the overall palette. Like The color palette's very blue and cool in the first one. It's more... <clears throat> more of a Lovecraftian imagery comes out in that one. Yes. And I think I like it for that reason. You know, you see these tentacles and all these, you know, monster, um, all the monster imagery, the Nazi stuff. I just like that one better just for the imagery. Yeah, I do as well. I mean, that said, I like them both. Yeah, they're both fun. Plus, just a shame we never get the third, you know, in which is meant to be like this grand scale apocalyptic thing. That's what they've been like eating. Yeah, this would have been his like, Return of the King, basically, and like, he needed two hundred and fifty million to make it. Apparently, and, like, you know, the yeah, that ain't gonna happen. Yeah, done. That's really a shame. That. But I would give him. I'd just give Del Toro, Del Toro like, all the money that he wants to make anything. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> just let him have free reign. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Del Toro, I got Crimson Peak lined up to watch. I'll get to that Ooh. either tonight or tomorrow night. Oh, nice. Mm, I'm looking forward. To I rented that. the Blu-ray, so that should. Look pretty good. I'm not religious, but I'll pray for you. <laughs> not a fan, huh? No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> I've got my expectations adjusted accordingly. I, I get, you know, I, I followed all the talk about it without, you know, while avoiding spoilers. So uh, we'll see how it goes. The Del Toro film I spoke about last time I had a blast with was Pacific Rim. The second time around, just enjoyed it a whole lot more, but. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. yeah. But you know, and not to beat this topic to death, but I think Del Toro we got to go the other way with. I think when he's forced to like have a smaller budget and some constraints, he might get a bit more creative and tell stories like The Devil's Backbone or things like that. The deal where he's got a smaller budget but all the creative freedom in the world. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that because it does seem like a lot of his smaller budget ventures turn out way better for whatever reason. Yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is brilliant. Oh, yeah, no doubt. This is unreal. Mm, uh, yeah, I yeah. do love that film. Which one? Kronos. Kronos I haven't seen yet. I got to yeah, catch up with that. Yeah, it's a really, really good, like, you know, gothic vampire movie. Yeah, a bit of a twist on uh, the kind of vampire lore as well, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, I've I've enjoyed every single one of his films so far, apart from Crimson Peak, which I haven't seen yet. But, you know, I think he's an interesting director. Yeah, he brings interesting ideas. I don't think he's always totally successful. Like the one that he, uh, he did the remake of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. He produced it. He did not direct it. But it was very much a Del Toro creative endeavor. 
And that one, eh, it's it's okay. I don't dislike it, but um, I don't think he's perfect, but he's always interesting. Yeah, and he seems to do it for the love as well. Like, you can tell he's passionate about every single project. You know, he really is. And he just wants to like make the movies that he would watch, which ranges, you know, from what, Small scale like ghost stories to like giant robots, which you know, yeah, that's what I like to watch as well. You know, so I can, I can feel. Yeah, me too. I just <laughs> love, love listening to him talk about the genre. And on that note, I will recommend the interview he did with Robert Rodriguez for El Rey Network. It's on YouTube. It's like yeah. a Ooh, 30, cool. 40 minute interview. I gotta check that out. Yeah, I'll put a link to that as well on um, the Facebook page but moving on then Anthony you watch Night Visions from 2001 so yes I've been watching this show called Night Visions it's a television anthology show it only lasted a year it was one season it managed to produce 13 episodes with 26 stories though every show was it was a one hour format with two stories and it's got a great roster of talent. You have Joe Dante in there directing. You've got uh, Keith Gordon. You may know Keith Gordon. He, was, he started out as, as the child actor, the well, young adult actor in Dress to Kill and Jaws 2. He was the star of Christine. He directs one of those episodes. Bill Pullman is in there, Toby Hooper. So a lot of good people associated with it. And I've gotten about five episodes deep, and they're pretty strong, really good stories. So want to recommend that. And the oh, the good news is they're all on YouTube. I think every one of these episodes is on YouTube, and they're good quality rips of it or whatever the source was from. I'll definitely check that out. Then with it being on YouTube, that makes a nice change. And um, Mike, you read, did you say X-Men Apocalypse? Yeah, to kind of get prepared for the... New movie, X-Men Apocalypse. I've been reading X-Men Age of Apocalypse. I picked up the... I think I'm reading the second book. And I know there's a prelude and a part one to this, but I, I haven't read it yet. But what I really like about most comic books, stuff like X-Men, uh, a lot of the Marvel stuff, is that uh, there's a lot... Of, they're really good at keeping you in context with a lot of stuff that's going on. Like, they'll mention past events, but kind of let you know what's going on. Like, I think even the first... The first issue in this book is uh, it's called Beginning. So, I mean, they do a lot of really good setup. But basically, what this is, it seems to be a, a bit different from what they're doing with the movie. This is kind of the post-apocalypse, if you will. Um, so, uh, in the typical X-Men world, you know, everything's going fine. And then the mutant Legion, he goes back in time. Um, he's like Terminator. He goes back in time to kill Magneto for things he's going to fuck up in the future. <laughs> but he accidentally kills his dad, Professor X, which, like, totally screws up the timeline. And Apocalypse ends, ends up coming ten years earlier to kind of start his reign and take over the world with him and Sinister and everybody. And it's this really cool... Where, I'm, where I am right now in the book, uh, certain allegiances and stuff are, are becoming wavered. And this really embodies what I love about comic books, especially something as epic as the Age of Apocalypse storyline, where I kept thinking of Game of Thrones. It's this really dark, riveting kind of storytelling with these comic book characters. You know, you got Wolverine and Gambit and Rogue and all these people who, you know, if you know them from the cartoon and stuff, 
you think of them as cartoon characters, but I love that this book really it really focuses on the drama really well because I think when you adapt a comic book movie to the big screen, you worry you focus a lot more on spectacle. But what works with comics, at least you know good ones like X Men and a lot of the Marvel DC stuff. You know, there's a lot to admire in the designs and the coloring and penciling and everything, but what really brings you back to read it is, is the drama with the characters, and I thought I really love the drama with what's going on. I think it's really, really riveting, and I'm really into it. I, I, I can't wait to read the book and get the rest of them. Very cool, man. I haven't read an X-Men book in ages. Like We're talking like 15 years. But, uh, you know, every now and then I'll just pick one up at the bookstore and just flip through it. And the art has come such a long way. Oh yeah. Like I don't get, I used to read comic books all the time, but I sadly, I don't get to as much as I used to, but I, I got a stack of books and every so often I'll go over there and I'll, I'll read some. So I really hope I get time to finish this book because I'm really into it. And uh, Kieran, you watched uh, Southland Tales. Uh, yeah. Well, like it's, uh, have you seen it? It's the Richard Kelly movie, follow up to Donnie Darko. Well, like, basically, you know, he was given a budget, it completely bombed, like, massively bombed. It was basically the, the curse oh, yeah. of him, destroying his career, basically. He's followed it up with another thought, but, you know, I really, really love it. It's like, you know, an ambitious mess. Absolutely, there's just, like, so many things going on at once which don't necessarily gel, but it's basically showcasing an imagination that's spinning wildly out of control. Like disregarding complete logic, but you know, it's a brilliant satire of like Hollywood, and then like it's just like meshing so many genres at once. You know, you've got like a conspiracy thriller, a comedy, a musical. It's a mess, but it's it's a masterpiece of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, when it came out, reading um, some terrible reviews of it, and I never just got around to watching it. But um, <laughs> I'm intrigued from what you've said, definitely. Yeah, well, it definitely is a mess. I can see why people hate it, but, you know, it's garnered some love in recent years, you know, with pe- people just watching. They're confused, but, you know, it, at least it's creative confusion. You know, like, I would take what a movie like this, like, you know, over, like, most other movies any day. I just, like, love Richard Kelly. I think he's, you know, he's a genius. It can't quite hone in his, you know, like, imagination to create, like, something that's quite cohesive and coherent all the time. But, you know... He's he's definitely interesting. And, you know, I would recommend this movie just to see it for the like, sheer experience of it. Just don't go in expecting, you know, well, you know, logic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I watch wrestling, so I certainly don't expect logic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's definitely more logical than some WWE. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And uh, like Mike, I also read a comic recently, and that was uh, Second Sight. I reviewed it for a big comic page, and I just have to mention it because it's like my favourite comic book that I've caught this year, for sure. And it's basically a very dark thriller that follows a psychic passenger um, called Ray Pilgrim, who, um, when induced with certain narcotics, is able to witness the murder of um, people that he has a connection to. So if he's holding something of theirs or is looking at their image on television. And it's very much in the kind of vein of films such as The Eyes of Laura Mars from 1978, which is a great kind of psychosexual thriller, if anybody hasn't seen it. 
And again, that's to do with uh, somebody seeing through the eyes of a killer. Um, probably Strange Days uh, from 1996, I believe. I could be getting that wrong. And um, Fear as well from 1990, in which a great premise, um, a psychic woman successfully helps a police to capture several serial killers until she comes up against a psychic serial killer whose abilities are greater than hers, which sounds brilliant, but it just wasn't executed very well, unfortunately. But the comic kind of goes down that route. It's very dark, like I say. It kind of circles around a paedophile ring and, you know, people that are involved in that and a kind of conspiracy that the main character gets drawn into reluctantly. It's got some great artwork. And um, like I say, it is pretty dark, but I'd definitely say pick it up. It's very gory, very violent, but it's just kind of got everything. And it isn't kind of afraid to touch on these subjects either, which, uh, you know, was quite refreshing as well. Yeah, that's definitely some taboo subject matter. (laughs) Yeah, but it does it in such a way, it's not kind of exploitative, if that makes any sense. It's just, it's been compared to True Detective and Hannibal. Um, because of the way that it handles the gore and because of the kind of convolution and hints at supernatural stuff, but not as much as True Detective in a way. But it's that kind of level of, you know, touching on that taboo kind of story and, like I say, presenting the gore, but in a really clever way with a really decent story. And the characters are really detailed and nuanced, so I'd definitely recommend that. I've got to uh, watch Eyes of Laura Mars. I haven't thought about that one in a long time, but that's a good movie. Faye Dunaway, Tommy Lee Jones, mm. Raul Julia, really yeah. good cast. No, definitely. It's um, one of my favorites. And I'm fascinated with this kind of notion as well of like, you know, people being able to kind of psychically connect with uh, serial killers, this kind of strange niche area of films I just find really fascinating. So. Mm. Luke, had you also watched Blue Exorcist? Yes, I have been watching Blue Exorcist. And I think we have, like, two more episodes until we finish that one. But what I will say about Blue Exorcist is that it's it has a very strong two opening episodes where you have this sort of unruly teenager, and he turns out to be the son of Satan, who is secretly being raised by this uh, priest who is acting as his father. From here on out, The series goes into your typical anime tropes. The main character and his brother, they they get sent to this sort of like specialty cram school where they're learning to be exorcist, essentially. And, And of course, the main character's goal is to kill Satan. But this high school is sort of like every other typical anime high school where you you have all these love interests and. It just, the more it went on, the the less it worked for me. And I was just really disappointed considering the first episodes were just so awesome. So I would basically suggest checking out the first two episodes of Blue Exorcist and then maybe stopping. Uh, it's on Netflix. Well, that sounds good, especially if it's on Netflix. Um, I'll definitely check that one out. If it's on my Netflix, is it on US? It is on US Netflix. I don't know about... UK Netflix. Just so subject. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I should also add that my wife liked it a lot more than I did. Like, I, I think she enjoyed a lot of the the high school stuff going on. But I, I think I've just seen so many of these animes over the years that 
you know, that's why it didn't work for me. So I, I think, you know, there is an enjoyment to be found, but it's just so hit and miss as it goes. Yeah. No, and Anthony, you watched Point Break from 1991 for the first time. This is a first watch, yes. Amazing, huh? Wow. Yeah. I'm interested to hear what you thought. Yeah, I really loved it. It was exciting. I was talking about it online at the Horror Etc. group, and uh, there was all this mixed you know, conversation. Some people were talking about how it didn't age well, and I, I just thought it was great. I, th- I thought it was kind of timeless in a way. I mean, you, you can tell it's made in a certain time period, but it was just a lot of fun. And what I liked about it was it had that vibe that Catherine Bigelow established in Near Dark. It's got some of those moments that are kind of dreamy, dreamlike moments where she's got the slow motion and some beautiful photography. And this one was not Tangerine Dream, but it had kind of a score that was a bit dreamy like that as well. Uh, so it's just kind of a mix of elements, but when it all comes together, it's got that stamp of Bigelow that was very much like Near Dark. I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, Patrick Swayze, of course. Love him. Miss yeah. him. <laughs> Fantastic. I think most everybody does. Yeah, it, the world is just not the same, is it? Let's have it right. It's not. I mean, even I love the guy, you know. Yeah. And Keanu Reeves was interesting here. You know, he's doing, he's, you know, I mean, he's as Keanu as you can get here, but he's got this <laughs> yeah. like persona. Um, I thought he, I thought he did well with it. You know, this type of personality he was trying to bring across really good. Yeah. I think Keanu Reeves always sort of plays Keanu Reeves, but I mean, he's, he's such a charming guy. I can't help but like him except maybe in, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I disliked him a little bit in that, but, yeah. but in everything else I like him. And yeah, Keanu Reeves is weird himself. to where like, he'll do one movie where he's great in it. But then you'll watch another movie and he's just so fucking terrible. He's got no in between. He's either really good or like, like, uh, like in Point Break, I, I think he's terrible in the movie. But you can watch something like The Matrix where he's actually, he's doing the same kind of thing, but he's, he just does it kind of better. He's, he's really back and forth. It's weird. Well, after seeing John Wick, I've decided we can stop making fun of Keanu Reeves because that so was just room. really great. Yeah, and Knock Knock, which is a masterpiece as well. <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah, that, will, that people in, will embrace that with time. That's like Keanu Reeves, like being Keanu Reeves, but as if, like, you know, he's been put in a blender with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> that sounds awesome. But, you know, <laughs> so, like, you know, he's definitely added to his, like, you know, acting repertoire and that because, you know, he incorporates some, like, Scenery tune, Nicholas Cage moments, but he's just like totally losing his shit completely. I need to catch this for sure. Oh, it's so good. I do too. It is did... so good. Michael <laughs> hate it. I didn't really hate it. I just thought it was okay. It was it's okay. What are we talking about? Knock knock or point break now? I was talking about knock knock. Okay. Yeah. Everyone have... loves point break. Have you, have you seen the remake, Mike? Oh, yeah, uh, that movie can suck my dick. Yeah, that's a fucking terrible movie. <laughs> that movie... Whew, that movie makes the original look like uh, the fucking Goodfellas. No, the remake... Ooh, ooh. Oh, fuck we that. weren't already explicit on iTunes. 
I hate that. Oh, God damn it. I forgot I even saw that movie. Oh. I wish we could put Mike's uh, quotes on film posters. That would be the best thing in the yes. world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love it. Um, and uh, Kieran, finally, you watched Sting Into the Light. Yeah, well, you know, this isn't a movie exactly. This is wrestling, like a wrestling documentary about, you know, Sting, who, like, is yeah. liquid or not. He's, like, you know, one of the like, true icons of wrestling. So WWE just released a documentary like chronicling his career from his rise from like, you know, the early days to like this his WWE, which took what over twenty years for me to get there. He was like one of the like final superstars who like, you know, never went when WCW folded. So it's just a really good in-depth documentary, which I would recommend, you know, to anyone who's a wrestling fan. Which, I can't wait to see this. Which I think is only me and Lickard. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. I cause Sting pretty much he was back in the the nineteen eighties in the National Wrestling Alliance NWA days, right? So yeah, well, forever it goes from that, you know, all the way up to his WWE days. What bypasses TNA because you know WWE don't really speak about TNA, but yeah, yeah, and a lot of that it, you probably want to forget yeah. anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, but, well, you know, it's a really good documentary. You know, going from his like early sir to like when he started like emulating the crow which was a really cool character you know for wrestling back in the 90s when it was like you know shifting and you know like darker pop culture elements that's how we can relate it to horror we can talk about crow sting yeah crow sting is very much you know horror it definitely yeah like just i mean he pretty much is playing the crow right yeah, so he just basically became what like the vigil anti of wrestling like that's why everyone should watch wrestling because like you get stuff like this that you just don't get anywhere else yes like, i totally agree like, you think like vigilantes and movies are cool with guns and that but you haven't seen it until you've seen like you know grown man like pretend to hit people with baseball bats exactly <laughs> it's awesome it you know steel chairs across the back yeah you gotta have that wrestling's as fun as movies it's like equal i would agree with that 100 <laughs> good sir i mean i i still watch it to this day i've been watching since i was a kid and it, it's still entertaining yeah you just can't but, you can't outgrow it some people do but if you like it past you know 15 that's your hooked for life yeah it's one of those weird things you know it's it's like horror movies for me like i <laughs> never outgrew horror movies and i never outgrew pro wrestling yeah so i just i keep watching um now, about the documentary itself, Kieran, how long is it? Because it's, I'd imagine, you know, you, you need a good chunk of time to cover it, a career that's this long. Yes, um, 83 minutes or something like that. You know, it packs all in for the running time. You know, ideally, like, you know, Stone Cold was about two hours. You know, I think Sting deserved yeah. it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a good documentary. It's basically him just sitting in his apartment, watching his old moments and then, you know, speaking about them. It's, you know, get like, you know, Ric Flair's, you know, gives like... You know, some interviews and, you know, Lex Luger, you know, Hogan, everyone that was, you know, like an integral part of his career. So I would definitely recommend that. If, like, you know, it's a good documentary, even if you're not a wrestling fan, you know, just about a character who's a big part of pop culture. I just want to take this opportunity to say that pro wrestling is fake. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it can't be. It's still really Next, is. <laughs> next thing. Next thing you're going to tell me, Anthony, is that Dracula is not real. Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about that earlier. Well, yeah. I used to have debates as one as a teenager. It's it's fake. No, it's real. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here absolutely fuming now. 
I can't wait to do it. So yeah, before uh, that we have this kind of a male altercation, we'll let uh, on to a female <laughs> hysteria, shall we? Yes, let's move on. I, to find a, before I end up in a headlock, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fake us. hit by a fake bat. So female hysteria then coming back to um, today's film. Um the term basically was a catch-all um kind of phrase used throughout history as a medical diagnosis um, and it's specifically coded as female and the term hysteria can be traced back to the Hippocratic corpus um, practiced during the 4th and 5th centuries BC in Greece and it was believed that the female uterus would travel around the body funnily enough oh my god wreaking havoc and causing illness and as such this notion of the wandering womb became the source of the modern term hysteria derived from the Greek word for uterus and um, Hippocrates's medical findings were continued and developed by uh, Claudius Galenus or Galen who was born in around 130 BC and Galen even uh, more comically believed that women possessed seminal fluids that were stored in the womb and that these fluids would turn venomous if not expelled from the body thus causing hysteria and the remedy he suggested was regular orgasms using men for frequent intercourse. Yeah, as if well, men can give orgasms, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, hysteria was um, referred to as um, the widow's disease as well, um, as if you weren't getting any, you were basically hysterical. And this... Wow. Yes. Um, this, I won't make any comments on that. The, this belief extended from ancient Greece um, and beyond, well into medieval times, um, and right up into the 20th century. Um, and obviously it seems quite comical and harmless, but I mean, the, the idea of female hysteria, um, also referred to as female malady, was responsible for many women being institutionalized during the um, kind of 19th and 20th century and they were subsequently physically emotionally and sexually abused and many were killed and there's a great book uh, by elaine showalter from 1987 called the female malady women madness and english culture from 1830 to 1980 and she demonstrates how cultural ideas about proper feminine behavior have shaped the definition and treatment of female insanity for 150 years and how they specifically um given mental disorder in women uh, sexual connotations and she also looks at um, the men who dominated psychiatry and the descriptions of the therapeutic practices that were used to bring women to their senses um, she looks at diaries narratives from inmates and also fiction from um, female authors such as Mary Wollstonecraft um, and Doris Lessing to provide a cultural perspective um, regarding mental illness throughout history. And as diagnostic science and techniques improved and society became more aware of psychological disorders throughout the 20th century, this kind of catch-all use of the term declined. Um, however, the gendered association of hysteria and neurosis as distinctly feminine um, still resonates in society today much in the hysterical way that men were and continue to be socially and culturally pressured to not show emotion. So men are considered hysterical when they become effeminized or take on uh, social female emotions or traits such as whimpering, cowering and crying. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on um, Linda Badlid's um, 
assertion in her fantastic book, Film Horror and the Fantastic. And again, I'll post links to all of these. Um, she writes that male hysteria was acknowledged by psychiatry, but um, famous hysterics were women. So Freud's writings include references to male hysteria, but they're um, heavily focused on female subjects. And she um, refers to the diagnosis of shell shock during World War, World War I um, as a form of male hysteria, which I didn't even consider. But what do you reckon to that? I'm not sure if I'm old enough to be on this show anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely can understand why men, I should say, would be diagnosed with that after going through World War One, you know, which is absolutely horrible. Yeah, I mean, especially in terms of the fact that, you know, World War One, any man that was um, too scared to go over um, the trenches and would cower and whimper, they would be feminized and they could be shot for it for treason. And it's the fact that still resident in today's society, you're talking about, you know, equality, if you don't want to use the word feminism, but the fact that just as much as you know women are subjugated men are kind of socially conditioned to not show emotion and that's you know having the same detrimental effect um for both sexes and oh yeah it's still very true today no doubt about that uh, completely and um badly also um refers to the cinematic context in regards to male hysteria um, and she said that this is revealed cinematically in the displacement of male engendered anxieties or phobias onto images of the body, male or female. And she specifically re uh, references the hyper-masculine bodies of male 1980s action stars, which she calls the, the phallic panic, um, <laughs> to the invasion and metamorphosis of the body in horror in general. Um, you know, you're looking at films like Inside, things like that. Um but the horror film is obviously very kind of rich in socio-cultural commentary, specifically for me in terms of gender roles. I'm always banging on about it, I know. But um, it really looks at fears and pressures, I'd say more so than any other genre. Um, and the entity actually um, is quite similar to other films that present this notion of female hysteria. And some examples would include um, Knock Knock, which you mentioned before, um, would you agree with that, Mike? Oh, definitely, yeah. And I know that I think Coven Karen's seen that as well. Have you? Yeah, absolutely. Knock knocks like it's definitely incorporates female hysteria, albeit in you know quite a cheesy way. But yeah, it's, it's definitely it's like you know a loose readaption of you know like Fatal Attraction, which is another film I felt done it really well. Oh yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah, one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, like Knock Knock goes into female hysteria in the sense that, like, uh, those bitches be crazy. But, like, <laughs> if you're looking for, like, a study in it, then that's, that's not the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, a, a, an academic study in those bitches be crazy. Um, <laughs> oh, you and H, we are so well-rounded. <laughs> you put that together with, with the rapey comment, we sound great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then, because obviously other ones would include... Um, I would say um, Polanski's Apartment Trilogy. Oh, good uh, one. Yeah. And yeah could, Rosemary's Baby, certainly. But um, yeah, Repulsion and then uh, The Tenant. Um, the Tenant's a little... I wonder if that one's a little bit of a stretch in this one, but certainly Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And um, more recently as well, probably... 
um, a little bit more in depth than Knock Knock would be Black Swan, which is a really kind of powerful, I think, study of um, female desire, all sorts. Um, And also The Lords of Salem, which I know is a very divisive topic. Fuck that movie. Um, you know what? I, I don't hate that movie. I, why? I actually, when I first saw it, I disliked it, but I don't know, man. There's something about that film that I feel like you know when you're thinking about a film a lot, it has something more to it. And I think that's the case with Lords of Salem. But anyway. I've I'm got gonna, it in my I'm ultraviolet account, and I haven't brought myself to click the button. I think the Lords of Salem, you know, it's definitely got an aspect of hysteria, but also, you know, drug addiction, which is yes. the underlying theme, I think, as well. But definitely hysteria, because, you know, it's got that like Polanski element, you know, of what Rosemary's Baby, of what the paranoia like, you know, been thrown into a situation, you know, where it's all dim and gloom and been forced to deal with it. And, you know, I will say one more thing about it. I, I think it would have been a better film had it not had Sherry Moon Zombie as the lead. Well, yeah, any I, movie with Sherry Moon Zombie would be a better movie with her, with, me, <laughs> with not in it. <laughs> I'm getting us way off track here. <laughs> I think she's done a good job on it. I just don't think her character was very well written, you know. Like, it was just instantly, you know, like, once, you know, it all kicked off, she was just, like, and it. Like, she didn't put up much of a fight whatsoever. It was just, you know, defeatist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, like, I think he was, Rob was going more for, you know, like, imagery and, you know, mood, which I thought that was the strength of the movie completely. Yeah. I would agree with that as well. It was very kind of um, flat, her performance in that, which for this kind of, um, you know, female hysteria, you need a bit more than that. And I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's done a lot better in films like The Sentinel as well. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As an extension of that, the female hysteria in The Entity stems from a ghostly attack, coupled with the sexual violence and... um, the protagonist kind of trouble history, including trauma and sexual abuse. Um, this raises the subject of spectrophilia. Um, and I thought of Mike when I was just researching this, because uh, he'd laugh his head off, um, which is defined as a fetish in which one is attracted to ghosts or spirits. So hey, spectrophilia... <laughs> That's scary, isn't it? Uh, spectrophiliacs um, fantasize about ghosts and often imagine scenarios involving sexual <laughs> events between themselves or others and spirits. And um, in Western folklore, the incubus is a demon that is said to take on a male human form. And much like its female counterpart, the succubus, it's um, said to seduce women into sex with the objective of impregnating the woman with its semen, which obviously relates back to films like Rosemary's Baby. Um, And I thought that was very kind of that's one kind of reading of the entity which i'm sure we'll get into you know whether or not it was kind of a a demonic form um but other kind of films that tackle um kind of spectrophilia and i'll credit to karen for kind of sourcing these um would be a seeding of a ghost from 1983 the rape after from 1984 very inventive titles um devil fetus from 1983 the erotic ghost story trilogy Oh, yes. This is a takeoff of Chinese ghost story, isn't it? From China? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is it the porn version? It, pretty much, oh. yes. See, that's why I thought of you when I thought of Spectrophilia, Mike. Yeah, see, um, now, now, now you're, you're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
yeah, you came up with quite a few others. Uh, Karen, do you want to like talk about any of those? Yeah, well, like, you know, like those ones that were just mentioned there, like, you know, I posted this in the group, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, and that was like, you know, the responses. I've only ever seen The Rape After, which is, you know, like a Cat 3 Hong Kong film, which is, you know, pretty, you know, violent. <laughs> yeah, you know, February don't, 3. All of those are definitely, they fall out of, you know, like, Chinese-like films, which apparently, like, back in the 80s, you know, had a lot of, like, ghostly sex, and there's, like, a lot more where those came from. So it's definitely, you know, maybe a sub-genre that they've perfected, if anyone has. <laughs> I've only seen the uh, the fight scene between uh, the, I, I think it's, like, a kung fu martial artist and a ghost, and it's, <laughs> it's more of a sex scene than a fight scene. It's yeah. it's absolutely ridiculous, but uh, yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure you can find it somewhere if, if our audience members yeah. care to see it. Well, a lot of those films dealt with really dark content, but in such a ridiculous way, it just wasn't disturbing. You know, it was really funny. <laughs> exactly, like it. It just. I don't even think they tried. To be perfectly honest with you, no. <laughs> a movie that does it well is The Legend of Hell House. Have you guys seen that one? Yes. I have not. I have never seen that. And it's You've got to get it on your list. Great, great film. One of my favorites. And great book as well. Yes, Richard Matheson, Hell House. Yeah, brilliant. I'm adding that to my list. <laughs> yeah, on me for ages. I've just never got around to it. And um, you also came up with a few more, Karen. Um, um, Apologies. Jeez, if I butcher these names, but uh, Botanduro, um, Kaiden, Yugetsu, High Spirits, um, The Haunted, as we've already mentioned, uh, from 1991, the TV movie, uh, Ghost, I didn't even think of that, yeah, um, from <laughs> yeah. 1990, which is pretty obvious. Yeah, well, you know, the only one out of those that I've seen aside from Ghost is Kaiden, which is, you know, the um, Japanese anthology movie based in, like, you know, the folktales. And the segment that the um, ghost sex is incorporated in is called The Woman of the Snow, which is, you know, based in, like, you know, a folktale about, you know, a man who sees a ghost and she tells him, you know, if you ever speak about me, you know, you'll pay. And then, like, years go by and, like, you know, he doesn't mention her. And, like, you know, he meets a family and, you know, a wife and has kids. And then he finally thinks, you know, well, it's been years. I'll just mention this woman. And ghostly women and you, mm. it turns out like when they mention it to his wife you know she's the ghost <laughs> oh wow so yeah like I've just spoiled the entire film for you completely but you know <laughs> I still want to see it it's it's really really boring like but people tend to love it you know don't trust me here because you know my tastes are like so <laughs> but yeah like you know it's interesting if you're in, you know into Japanese mythology which you know it's pretty true to it but yeah, so that's one like you know, there's some ghostly sex in that because technically she's a ghost, even though you would never know that until like you know. It's interesting. Yeah, and like another one we've got in the last year is um, Ghostbusters. There's this scene where Dan Aykroyd was getting fellatio in a dream. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a film that I really cannot stand. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, uh, we, we we won't talk about the remake either because that's another contentious subject. Oh yeah, we well I'm sure we will when it comes out. But <laughs> oh right, Ghost, I keep forgetting that they're remaking that. Yeah, it's it's better you forget. Yeah, some <laughs> yeah. of the posters just no. Oh god, don't bring up those fucking posters. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. 
What about Scary Movie 2? Are we counting that as horror? Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't really remember the scene from it. I just, apparently it happened. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember this. The one with the bag over the head, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one, actually. I do remember that. I've not seen that. <laughs> and there's a scene with, uh, what's her name in her bedroom? Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's on the ceiling, isn't she? Yeah, and she blows at the ghost or whatever. Yeah. And I've seen Scary Movie 2, and I don't remember either of those. Dead brain cell for me. <laughs> on that, on that uh, post that Kieran referenced at Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Barry Ewan, our friend, uh, cites Lovely Molly. And I haven't seen Lovely Molly yet, but there's a scene where someone is observed on a security cam, either you know, having sex with an invisible being or something, or she's just plain nuts. It's been a while since I've seen Lovely Molly, but it was definitely one of the strongest, you know, horror offerings from that year. It's really good. I recommend mm. all of Eduardo Sanchez's movies. He's really underrated, I think. You know, obviously, yeah. the projects he's, you know, the one he'll always be synonymous with, but he's good. I think he's been pretty consistent, but actually, I don't remember that scene earlier because it's been a while since I've watched that movie. I just remember really enjoying that. Yeah, I like this film, Altered. Have you seen that one? We're getting yeah, off really topic, but yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, just kind of moving on from the kind of similar films to what we're talking about today, and um, we have a segment from um, the horror librarian, Talisha, and she tackles A House of Psychotic Women, an autobiographical topography of female neurosis in horror and exploitation films. The longest title in the world. Um, has anybody read this? Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's, I know we've referenced it before. I've, on the show, I've heard I've about never, it a lot, yes. Yeah, because... Yeah, I've heard about it, but never read it. Mark is a big fan, and it's a personal favourite of mine. It's a complex, um, really beautifully written account of um, this subject, um, female neurosis in horror and exploitation films, written by um, Keila Janice. And she is the founder of the Miskatonic Institute of Horror, um, which has a lecture series in the US and the UK. And she um, basically is autobiographical, so it touches on um, elements of her kind of horror history and how that kind of merged with um you know, her life growing up. And I think both men and women will find it a really fascinating read. But for me personally, as a woman who loves horror and is drawn to typically difficult films, it's a really interesting account and verbalised a lot of my own feelings about the genre uh, myself. And um, I know that other, you know, female fans will appreciate it. And I know that Talisha is a huge fan. So um, she's going to talk about the book and... Um, the section that refers to the entity. So take it away, Talisha. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book. A reading rainbow. A reading rainbow, a reading rainbow, a reading rainbow. 
Salutations, fellow horror fans. This is Talisha Tarver, your horror librarian, here to discuss this week's book tie-in for The Entity, the 1982 film starring Barbara Hershey as a single mom terrorized by an abusive ghost. For this week's book, I've chosen House of Psychotic Women by Kirla Janice. She's a Canadian writer who has contributed to publications like Fangora and Rue Morgue magazine. And in House of Psychotic Women, she is quite adept at analyzing horror films featuring female protagonists. Uh, More specifically, these films and the women they depict, uh, according to Janice anyway, represent how madness is perceived in women. But what I particularly like about Janice's take on it is that she takes time to explain also what was going on in society at the time these movies were made. So you get a deeper understanding of why the female characters are written as they are. But for most people, what will make House of Psychotic Women probably stand out even more is that Janice uses her analysis of horror films to tell her own personal story. Because in these movies, Janice sees depictions of her own neuroses and uh, also of her tumultuous background as the adopted daughter of a troubled couple who divorced shortly after they adopted Janice. Janice writes that uh, everything in my early existence shaped me for my future. I was chauffeured into this dark terrain by my parents but stayed there because of something in myself and that something was decidedly female. So you get an idea of like her inspiration behind uh, writing this particular book. Right off the bat, The Entity is the first movie that she discusses, and she uses it to illustrate a very devastating story of her own mother's rape. Um, Shortly after Janice's parents divorced, Janice was living with her mother across the street from a halfway house, and the men from the halfway house were often sent over to fix plumbing and electrical problems uh, when one of them left the door ajar to come back in later, so every person's worst nightmare, really. Uh, Janice says she awoke to a commotion and knew something was very wrong and went to go find her mother, who told her to go back to bed and later came and got her and assured her that the door was latched from the inside and that nobody could get in. But as Janice was to find out later, and the most chilling part of the story is that she had actually walked in on the assailant attacking her mother, and you know, of course her mother convinced her to go back to bed and told the attacker that if he turned on the light that she and her daughter would be able to see his face and become witnesses, and that was enough to get him to leave. Um, interestingly, though, uh, you know, just in light of all of this, Janice explains that once she learned the entire story, it, it kind of uh, formed a strain on her relationship between her and her mother. Um, just And of course, just kind of you know, color their uh, relationship from here on out. Um, But like Carla Moran and the entity, uh, Janice's mother, of course, is also a struggling single mother. Uh, So that it was just a little too uh, close to home. And of course, uh, Janice says that when the entity came out, uh, it was a movie that her mother just absolutely refused to see for obvious reasons. So it just was almost autobiographical for her and probably for some women as well. Janice says her mother uh, also later married an abusive man, thus continuing her, her own cycle of abuse, um, even though she was uh, you know, somewhat independent. She was a registered nurse and worked outside the home. But uh, with uh, the entity, Janice describes it as uh, actually a depiction of domestic abuse, um, even though the ghost is explained to be some form of acting out that Carla is somehow responsible for in order to deal with repressed uh, sexual trauma and feelings. Um, coincidentally, just like Carla's psychiatrist, uh, Janice's father, who was also a psychologist, didn't believe uh, his ex-wife's story of having been raped. And, uh, of course, with the mother marrying a- another difficult man was, uh, you know, kind of reflected the way abuse victims keep reenacting these experiences as a way to, quote-unquote, get it right this time. So uh, in the same vein as Carla, uh, with Carla's psychologist, gets her to admit that she may be the cause of this, 
so she's you know acting it out in order to try to like make uh, make sense of what happened to her in the past but with you know Janice kind of has what my thought on this is is that you know what the psychologist is telling Carla and you know the types of things that you know that typically happen with abuse victims is that it actually reflects the uh, the gaslighting that a lot of abuse victims have to deal with when they finally do turn for help so um, you know that they sometimes somehow are able are convinced that this was their fault but uh it's a it was a pretty timely story for the time uh, in which it came out because it um, was around the same time that the liberation women's liberation movement had been going on for a while and more and more women were working outside the home however Janice writes that a lot of movies in this period reflected a quote, guilt that ran through genre films at this time and ate away at the psyches of the female characters who oscillated between domestic responsibility and the desire for autonomy, end quote. Uh, Janice's mother and Carla Moran are both working women who came to believe they were responsible for the abuse they suffered, so it's not hard to imagine how unsettling and controversial this movie was when it came out. So as you can already tell, um, just from her take on the entity, this entire book is not a light read. Uh, it's a very enlightening and interesting uh, analysis of all these different horror films. Uh, and actually, Spider Baby is even covered <laughs> in Towards the Back. And the breadth of films that are covered in their analysis is really great, and um, especially in light of Janice's personal take on all of these. Um, that said, that particular part of the book is only about 174 pages, um, at, at which uh, there is an image gallery of the movie posters and stills, and then in the very back, this encyclopedia-like entry of all the movies that are covered in the book. So if you're looking for a catalog of even more movies about psychotic women, definitely check out House of Psychotic Women by Kira Janice. Until next time. for her segment there and moving on to another book the book that inspired the film that we're talking about today uh, the entity from 1978 which was written by frank d felita i think is how you pronounce it who was an author producer pilot and film director and he actually wrote the screenplay for the entity the film which was filmed in 1981 uh, but he also wrote the novel audrey rose from 1975 which was a bestseller 2.5 million copies sold and this resulted in the 1977 film of the same name um which is again was scripted um by the good film. movie good movie anthony hopkins yeah and i wasn't aware that there was actually a sequel in 1982 for love of audrey rose i did not know that no um so that's one i'm definitely interested to kind of check out um i don't believe he scripted it I yeah, could I'll, be you wrong, know, uh, I'll just give a shout out to Castle of Horror podcast, which is the only podcast I know of that has covered Audrey Rose. And they did it as like a companion to The Exorcist, which is an interesting way to pair it up. Yeah, I, I, that's I one I'm going to have to check out. It's a great podcast, and that was a really good episode. 
but um, Deeflita actually directed the television film Dark Knight of the Scarecrow from 1981, and it was covered on a previous episode by Anthony in a TV terror segment. Yes, yeah, great movie. Very interesting. Yeah, he was the author of The Entity, but he took the director's chair to do Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Talk about a multi-talented guy. Yes. And he was a pilot. He could fly between sets. So his third novel, The Entity, from 1978 was based on allegedly true events in 1974 in which um, Dr. Barry Taff, a doctor in psychophysiology at the University of California, also a biomedical engineer and a parapsychologist, um, was discussing issues related to his latest case with an associate while browsing books at the local bookshop and Doris Bitha overheard the conversation and approached to ask him for help. Um, are you familiar with the original case? Well, I wasn't until I watched the film and started doing some research, and it's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's very um, similar for me to um, The Enfield Haunting, um, which I know I've spoken about before because it was a TV adaptation of that. But again, that's been kind of novelized. Basically, Doris Bithers was a single mother. She had an adolescent daughter and three sons, which in the film, she has an adolescent son. Oh, well, 16-year-old son and... Um, younger daughters and I thought it was interesting how they reversed that yeah we'll kind of touch on that later because there were scenes that were specifically cut from the film that kind of suggested that as part of her kind of sexual abuse and her female hysteria that Carla in the film is having incestuous thoughts about her son I kind of got that from one of the opening scenes and, and we will touch more on that definitely but in the um, supposedly true account, Doris Bithers reported that she was the victim of an abusive childhood and to that day uh, was demonstrating symptoms of a deep psychological uh, trauma. Sorry, Dr. Taff reported, not Doris. Um, and although he didn't immediately kind of dismiss the case, he was obviously very sceptical, um, which made him want to investigate more on a psychological level, allegedly. And the children told Dr. Taff about an entity they called Mr. Who's It? And all four claimed to have witnessed this entity on numerous occasions. And the doctor noted that their depictions were remarkably accurate, not just matching each other's, but also in details commonly attributed to um, poltergeist activity in other cases that he um, had been involved in. And there was actually an interview conducted in 2009 um, by Ghost Theory with one of the uh, sons who described four entities in the home and said that they made themselves known by appearing like a fog, kind of like human form, but not quite. Whereas Doris described her attacks in there were three entities, two smaller ones that would hold her down, while the third and larger one uh, raped her. And these attacks left marks on her body, indicative of a rape, including bruising and through the um, research team and probably um, psychical uh, kind of research societies, um, supposedly they obtained evidence of the manifestation of the poltergeist. And you can see their photographs online. Um, and again, um, I can post some links to um, articles about the, the story. But in the end, the um, Bithers family moved away Um finally moving back to the area and with every move the entity supposedly followed her and her family but the attacks gradually decreased in um, their ferociousness and she passed away Doris Bithers at the age of 58 um, in 1999 of cardiopulmonary failure 
and this seems a bit kind of sensationalized, but it was apparently stated that her death was the result of multiple organ failure, but that the precise cause of such untimely organ failure was never medically determined. So insinuating that it had something to do with the haunting. Um, but I mean, what do you reckon yeah. to that? She was definitely a young woman. I mean, it's, it's so hard to know in these kind of cases uh, because I am a little skeptical of this kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, for someone to pass away at, at 58 of organ failure, I mean, it's very strange. But we don't know exactly what she did in her younger life. You know, she may have consumed a lot of alcohol or drugs. And I'm not saying she did by any means. But we just, we don't know these things. Um, the pictures, though, I find a bit more interesting. Have you guys had the opportunity to take a look at the pictures? No, I haven't. I'm not convinced by the the pictures, but it is, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, they're a little bit more convincing than, say, pictures that the Warrens have taken. Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> or even with the Enfield haunting, where the girls are literally kind of just jumping off their beds. And, you know, exactly. they're making out that they're just kind of floating. But, um, yeah, I, I find any of it fascinating, and I'll always kind of read up on them. So, And if anybody's interested in reading the book, it's pretty cheap on Kindle. Um, and it's just a nice companion piece to the film, if you're interested. And if you don't believe in it, which is kind of my stance personally, they're actually quite creepy little stories. So, Yeah, I would be very interested to read this after seeing the film. Yeah, I mean, she is um, called Carlotta in in the book, and slight different things, have, you know, have changed. But it's very, very similar. But it's just, and it kind of goes into a bit more detail in terms of her um, home life and, um, you know, her kind of upbringing and how that kind of affects her later on, which is, like I say, a really nice kind of companion piece to the film once you've watched it. And I think that's what I would be most interested to know more about considering you know the state of the things that happened to her in the film and I mean there are so many things that can affect the brain and trauma obviously you know you mentioned uh men being affected um in world war one and you know just any kind of trauma can make people do crazy things or believe crazy things see strange things so I think it would be really fascinating to read this Twentieth Century Fox presents the story of Carla Moran, the most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. Everything broke loose and went crazy, and everything was shaking. The bed was shaking, and the walls were shaking, and like uh, like an earthquake. No, it wasn't like an earthquake. It was much stronger than any earthquake. Oh wait a minute! I, I, honey, I don't really understand this. I, you were attacked, or, or you weren't. It happened. I was raped. You were raped by whom? I don't know. There was no one there. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? Not anyone else. Why is she going to such lengths to support this delusion? And they will find more than evidence. They will find the entity. 
moving on to the film then, Rumog magazine actually interviewed the director, Sidney J. Fury, in July 2012. And I know we were just talking off air about his other projects, um, but they're quite kind of broad, aren't they? Because he directed one of the Superman films. Yeah, it was Superman 4, um, I think the jazz singer. That was it, yeah. yeah. So he's had quite a kind of, uh, quite an interesting film, this one, um, because obviously he's not a genre director as such, a horror director, and he actually stated in this interview in 2012 that he did not consider the film to be a horror film, in spite of, um, you know, the, basically the horror elements, and he said that he considers it to be more of a supernatural suspense movie. Um, and he said that he actually avoided researching the actual case upon which the film's based as he did not want to judge the characters and story in any way and he and the actress Barbara Hershey didn't bother to meet with Doris Bither during or after the shooting the film was completed which I thought was quite interesting but obviously they had the book to go off it was filmed on a budget of $9 million and it grossed just over $13 million in the US. So it wasn't commercially successful, but it did kind of develop a cult following afterwards. And um, director Martin Scorsese included the film in his top 11 scariest horror films of all time. That's high praise. Yeah. Because, you know, Scorsese is one of the scariest non-horror movie directors. I can barely get through Cape Fear. Yeah. A great movie, yeah. Yeah, that end scene. Mm. There's actually a Bollywood film called, I believe, Hawa, H-A-W-A, from 2003, that's based on the entity, which I thought was really fascinating because it's not a subject that I thought a Bollywood film would tackle. So I'm going to have to try and source that myself. I would love to see that because, yeah, Bollywood, I typically think of, you know, romance, lots of dancing, not really uh, horror in particular. I mean, I've seen a few Bollywood action films, but uh, yeah. Yeah, not really. That sounds cool. Ghost rape, yeah. Um, hey, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, composer Charles Bernstein's score for the film was actually used in Quentin Tarantino's Inglourious Bastards, which I wasn't aware of. Really? Yes, apparently. Huh. Um, and just kind of following on from that point um, to get into the plot of the film, um, Carla Moran is a single mother. I've said played by Barbara Hershey and she's training to be a typist while trying to hold down a job and uh, she's constantly multitasking she's shattered she's on the go she gets home after a long day uh, the house is untidy she berates a teenage son questioning a letter received from the school um, and they seem to still have a kind of great rapport and we know that she's a good mom you know they have um, a bit of a laugh and a joke but um, Charles Bernstein's score has been described um, and criticised as being very intrusive, particularly in later scenes. But what did you make of it to start with as we see this kind of introduction to Carla and her going about her daily life? Um, what I like about the score is, it, like, as a whole, it, I don't know, I think it's kind of a typical score, but I think what when it really works is during the attack scenes. I think the music in those scenes in particular is really effective and really atmospheric and uh, really lends itself to a lot of the the terror of the scene but i think outside of that it's nothing really special it's a little bombastic in those moments i, I had to get accustomed to it it's sort of that driving um almost like um the way the bernard herman store score in psycho works with the the stabs of you know just repeated notes but this one's a little more percussive so it's a bit bombastic, but 
Uh, apart from that, I thought it was fine. I wasn't distracted by the by the score. I felt I, I actually felt this like you know the score was like instantly like effective because it gave a sense of like you know what for bowing them like it wasn't it didn't get like it wasn't like easing like the horror wasn't going like you know ease like you know like come with time I felt right away like it gave like a sense that she was been stuck right from the get-go and it was really intrusive as you said I also think like the score overall is like the strongest aspect of the film is it's like you know really imposing and even I felt violated hearing it, and I wasn't been attacked by a horny spirit, at least not until, well, you know, after I finished watching. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it works in that way because, yeah, you know, this, like, the subject matter is this woman just being raped and attacked, and it's just this uh, driving force. So the, the music is, you know, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's like, well, the initial score was like, very bombastic in a way, but, you know, I also thought it was, you know, quite intense at the same time. You know, it had that well, underlying menace to it. You know, it definitely yeah. was more effective afterwards. I'd say so, because the, the initial shots um, of the film, it's got kind of, um, it's very dark tonally, the film. So I'd agree with that kind of stalking aspect as we see her going about her day. Like we're learning more about her character, obviously, but straight away with that music, it kind of lets you know that something's wrong here, something's building up. And pretty much straight away, we get the first rape scene. Um, as soon as she kind of gets home and he's in her bedroom, she is kind of um, smacked across the face initially. And then we get that first rape scene with um, that, absolutely pounding uh, baseline and we don't see anything because she's being smothered by a pillow it's very effective in that way so we're we're kind of you know as taken aback if you will as she is um and you know her oldest son runs in her two uh, youngest girls are terrified beside themselves so it's a very kind of um emotional kind of scene and billy checks the house but realizes no one's there so, I mean, for me, personally, it was quite brutal, even though the majority of the attacks, you know, they're not graphic as such. You know, what did you think about how quickly it got into it? Because it wasn't a slow burn. You are literally straight in there. Yeah, that's what surprised me, how quickly it moved into this just vicious, violent attack. And, I mean, it, it was rough to watch, no doubt about that. Because it, before it, I mean, they, they do a very good job of establishing her as, as a very hardworking woman who is taking care of her three children. Yeah, it doesn't take its time in letting you know what the movie is about. We get to that scene pretty quickly. But apart from that, it's um, it's not a slow burn, but it, it's paced out. You know, it, it takes its time characterizing her. and um, But it's, yeah, it's punctuated by these scenes pretty regularly. So it, it moves along at quite a clip. Yeah, well, I thought it was like, you know, that heavy bass sound was like really, really like brutal as well. Like, you know, I was surprised by how quickly it actually, you know, does like go there with like the rape scenes. Like the title of the score is apparently called Relentless Reading, which is, you know, basically describes, I think, the entire movie. Like, which is like, you know, it's like really pummeling stuff and like the score really enhances that. And it, I think it expertly, you know, shows how sound can be such an like an effective component when creating like terror, which is you know I feel like a lot of films you know don't really like focus on. 
I think the issue you used it, you know, like you know, quite predominantly. Yeah, I I'd agree completely and very, very effectively. I think if you didn't have that, it obviously it would still be a disturbing scene, but it just completely punctuates it. And we kind of get a subsequent episode of poltergeist activity. Um we get all of the you know standard markers, cold spots, she's in a room. Um, there's a bad smell, um, the furniture starts to shake as this energy builds up and she escapes, uh, manages to flee with the children. She goes to the home of her friend, Cindy, played by Margaret um, Bly, and they spend the night there. Uh, the next morning, Cindy asks what's wrong. Um, and there's a great scene, actually, during the night where her son is asking her about, you know, what actually happened. And she's like, I don't know. And she lies down. Um, telling him to go to sleep and she's just silently kind of crying and that just that one shot really kind of got to me in terms of all the female hysteria stuff and whatever you want to um talk about you know that that just kind of very feminine emotion of not being able to show how she's feeling in front of her children she's you know really struggling not to cry um so that they can hear it yeah it does a good job with with that tension of wanting to tell somebody but being afraid to be thought to be crazy you know just a hysterical woman that's it but she's so grounded for her children so that that kind of juxtaposition and then the next morning that's really played upon when her friend says to her look what what is wrong and she says i was raped and then she gets that kind of um obviously empathy from a woman uh but she then says that nobody was there and what did you think about the way that her friend kind of reacts then? Because she doesn't outright call her crazy. She says, you, you, you know, you're one of the strongest women I know, the most grounded women I know. But when you're saying this, obviously something's wrong. You need to just go and speak to somebody. Yeah, I think that one of the best things and most surprising things about this movie is that, uh, I mean, even when we get, it's very human. Even when we get to how the ghost attacks her, it isn't. I mean, until the second half of the movie, it's not a big light show. I mean, she it rapes her, and I I thought that was really dark. Uh, that it's a supernatural entity, but it, it's doing a very human, animal kind of attack. And I thought that everybody's re- what I really liked was that everybody's reactions to what she was saying, even her own, were really believable. So I was I understood how everybody was reacting, all how all these different types of people reacted, all these different types of ways. And even uh, the main character, Barbara Hershey, she gets that. And I, you, she realizes that she sounds crazy and you just see how tormented she is that she can't explain it to even herself, really. And I thought that created a really cool, really interesting kind of deep character dynamic that I really appreciated. And I think that when you create characters you can get behind and believe doing believable things in ghost movies, in supernatural movies... That's kind of how you get invested in it. That's how. That's what invests you as these characters. So when these ghostly things happen, it kind of horrifies you more because it feels more grounded. Yeah, and it helps that it's Barbara Hershey because she's such a terrific, a terrific actress. She's so oh, yeah. vulnerable and likable. You know that you you're immediately sympathetic toward her. You feel her uh, tension, as I mentioned before, like struggling to tell people about it. She's just terrific. Yeah, but she's, she's also very strong as well, I'd say. Yes. She looks strong. Do you know what I mean? She's a strong woman. Right. Yes. Yeah, she's all around great in this, just able to convey all the right emotions at exactly the right time. It's like, yeah, well, 
back, like to harken back to the part about her friend, you know, well, her natural reaction was, you know, like, has she been taking drugs? Which I think if, like, you know, this was a, you know, like, a real life situation, it's like a perfectly, you know, normal response. So, like, you know, I thought her friends, but the actress put her friend actually bordered on Hammy sometimes. Because, like, her initial response was, you know, quite, you know, not shock. It was just instantly going for the hug. But, like, you know, it towed that line between Hammy and believable. Yeah, but, she believes something happened to her, but she wants to rule out the obvious stuff first and, you know, just care for her. I thought the performance got really strong when she was reacting, you know, like, to the you know, story about, like, you know, it being an entity and not a person. I thought that that's not as good, but I thought that scene was quite awkward for, you know, a while. But then, you know, for the most part, you know, it worked. Yeah, her friend definitely came off as sort of um, goofy. Yeah, like your traditional like, Stepford wife. <laughs> yeah, like, like an over-the-top rich southern wife or something. Yeah. The response of kind of the three key women in the film to her I found really interesting because it was a friend. There was the kind of main woman in the panel of um, psychiatrists that review her case. And then there is the, um, basically the parapsychologist at the university who's kind of um, the nemesis, if you will, to um, the psychiatrist looking after Carla and the fact that she's a woman. And I thought that those three women and how they kind of responded to it was very interesting. Um, but coming back to her friend, Cindy, her relationship with her husband as well is a bit strange. Because we don't see him for a while, but he's a complete yeah, he's dick. A... Yes, what a jerk off. <laughs> and then that morning, he's actually being such a dick that, you know, talking really loudly about how he doesn't want them all there, that Carla leaves without saying goodbye to her friend um and she spends all day literally sat in the car rather than return home but eventually she has to um she's about to sleep on the couch her friend cindy comes around and says that um she's staying with her she told her dick husband she was going to see her sister and she says you know i'd leave him if i had the balls is basically what she says um which is quite interesting again compared to when we hear about carla's history and what she's been through you know she's done everything on her own you know she is self-sufficient which is really interesting in terms of the dynamics of her and her boyfriend jerry who's also a dick lots of dick men in this film and the night passes with no disturbances while cindy's there cindy actually sleeps in her bed um and carla is like say on the couch but the next day when she um goes out to work her car um mysteriously just goes out of control and we get that music again so we know that it's the entity um and she manages to kind of avoid a collision but she's urged to see a psychiatrist by cindy and that's when carla meets with dr snyderman who's played by ron silver he always looks very villainous doesn't he even when he's He's not he's great he's great can i inject something here ron silver you've got to see the movie Blue Steel with Jamie Lee Curtis, if you haven't, because it's probably the ultimate Ron Silver villain. Uh, terrific movie. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen it in years. I had it on VHS. That's how yeah, old I am. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, but basically, um, Snyderman listens to her. He kind of talks through um, the attacks. And his approach is very direct. He straight away is kind of 
talking about her, um, you know, trauma um, in her childhood, we, we learn that she um, had experience of sexual abuse and um, I think she hints at physical abuse. You know, her first husband at 16, I believe, died in a motorcycle accident. That was Billy's father. Um, and then she married a much older man. So she's had a very kind of um, terrible life. But, you know, she actually says to him when he says, you've had a difficult life, she says, who hasn't? So she's very kind of grounded about that. And when she has that conversation with him, um, there's an interesting kind of use of mirrors in the film. And, you know, I'll touch upon the technical aspects because I think they're utilised just as much as the narrative. But um, her image appears fractured in mirrors, whether she's using a mirror with, you know, um, several different sections on on a desk, uh, like a desk mirror, or however it's filmed, she is, her image is duplicated. And basically when he's around, Dr. Snyder, he comes to the house, he drops her off after one of their sessions, he comes into the house and they're both filmed in the mirror, but he doesn't have another reflection. Um, so, you know, it's just the one image of him, whereas she is duplicated. And that seems to hint again that it's all this kind of very feminine um, notion of hysteria. And even later on, when the parapsychologists come into the house, they are framed in the mirror and you only see the one image of both of them. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, it's kind of a motif. Um, so you think it symbolizes the her... her can you reiterate what you thought that was symbolizing? I mean, if we're talking about her um, psychological issues that she has basically, and Dr. Snyderman proposes that her abuse when she was younger, she's kind of stored it away mm-hmm. and it's come back full force. You know, it can't be, you know, something's triggered it. And that's what's um, kind of exacerbated all of these hallucinations, whatever you want to call them. And it's kind of those, uh, that duplicitous, um, personality I would say and female hysteria that it's yeah you know yeah. or like what's real what's what's not real and exactly. and later you know later she's going to smash those mirrors in a key scene yes you picked up on my next point exactly she goes for when it's about to attack her again everything starts to kind of tremble and she breaks every mirror in the apartment and this is um around about the time as well she's molested by the the entity while she's asleep and she orgasms as a result of it so she's just so ashamed with herself she looks at her reflection and she can't seem to stand what she sees so again it's slowly kind of creeping into madness you could say yeah also maybe you know sexual repression like you know where you know i don't know that what's that called you know when you're basically getting attachment to like your molester yeah and he also hints at that dr snyderman doesn't he he says that when she was younger and it's incredibly clever dialogue in this film i really think because of you know the film actually provides um a, a literal dialogue between science um versus the supernatural really and you know he says to her when you were growing up what was it that your your family was afraid of and she says you know she actually screams at him it was sex you know it couldn't be mentioned it couldn't be thought of but obviously that was repressed by her father and then you know he had different outlets that you know caused her kind of childhood trauma but it's quite interesting then a bit later when Snyderman kind of presents her 
case to the panel of psychiatrists, um, kind of touching on these points um, and what they have to say. But um, when he's talking about her psychosis and, and you know, um, he mentions demons. He has a book full of images, doesn't he? Yeah. And he's, that's when he brings in the kind of supernatural aspect of it. And I just wanted to kind of touch on that in terms of, you know, has anybody ever experienced um, sleep paralysis? Yes. Anyone it's else? <laughs> I haven't, but it sounds terrifying. Yes, it really does. Yeah, there are quite a few documentaries. I had it really bad at one point. Like, so I was having it quite a bit. And it's basically mm. your brain wakes up for your body so you can project images from whatever you're dreaming about kind of into the room so it's terrifying and but more so it's just that you can't wake up and you'll kind of feel like you're moving your arms or you're moving your legs but nothing's happening and because you can't move people have described feeling a weight on their chest um and that has obviously because of nightmares and where your brain goes if you think something's sat on your chest you know there's some this famous kind of paintings depictions you know such as the nightmare i think it's called um of demons being sat on your chest and there's yeah i like think this a, relates uh, also to the old hag that whole yeah, thing yeah yeah and uh, basically uh, the the feeling that there is an entity in the room there's something in the room with you because you are physically you can't move which to me is a perfectly logical way for a human mind to you know try to make sense of why you can't move something must be pinning you down and obviously you're you know, it's very nightmarish so you can think all sorts but um I didn't know whether maybe that was one because of the stress and anxiety um that was how it had manifested and that could be one of the explanations would you agree I didn't think about that, but that is a very, very good point because, you know, a lot of the times when you have sleep paralysis, you do feel like you're being physically down, but it can, you know, like range in how extreme it can be, like, you know, from, like, violent like, attacks and lashes to, like, even, like, you know, our body experiences. So that definitely, you know, there have been cases, you know, reported somewhere where your people feel like they're being physically attacked. So yeah. definitely. Yeah, and there's... um. Like I said, there's several documentaries on the subject. I think one's called The Nightmare. Um, yeah. So I can post um, links to that as well if anybody's interested. But um, Yeah, that's one I've wanted to see for a long time. It's very, yeah. very good. Yeah, I think I've avoided it literally because I just don't want to have them again. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, is it is it anything like uh, sleep apnea? Because I, I suffer from that. And I mean, it's, you know, it's it's horrible waking up not being able to breathe. So I can only imagine... I've never had that. Um, yeah, well, like, I do think it is somewhere because, like, well, when I've had sleep paralysis, you know, I've like, tried to call out and I couldn't make a sound. So, yeah. Yeah, I actually yeah. had somebody say to me once, um, I woke up and one of my friends just kind of stood right in front of my face and they said, oh, your eyes were rolling in the back of your head. <laughs> and I was literally, oh I was God. trying to wake myself up. So your eyes are moving. So it's kind of like REM in a way. Um but it's, it's, <laughs> but it's just, yeah, really, really not nice, basically. Were your um, eyes open? Yeah, yeah they, they were partially, because I could see the room. I could see people in the room. But at the same time, I was kind of dreaming. It, and what I was dreaming, like I've had, you know, I've you kind of feel sometimes that you get to the door and something's blocking the door and you can't get out. And that's where the entity thing comes in. And then you realize, no, you're not awake yet and you need to keep trying 
to move. Ooh, that is frightening. It's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty scary. But I mean it's never been like anything like demonic hags and all that. I mean touch wood. I'd be terrified to go to sleep tonight. But it's just that notion of having to make yourself realise you're not awake yet because you keep thinking you are and then and trying to move you're exhausted by the time you actually wake up. Oh, you feel like you can just kind of drop straight asleep again, but you're scared if you do, you'll never kind of wake up. It's really weird. Do you always remember those episodes? Yeah, every time. Hmm. And it doesn't happen to you anymore? Only if I my sleep pattern's interrupted. Um, it was basically when I was a teenager and my close relative passed away. And it just started straight after that. And I was just told it was stress, basically. Um and it just went on for a, quite a while. I had it really regularly. And then now it's if, um, like I say, if I don't sleep for a while, I'll tend to have it. Wow. But it's, there aren't many people I've really spoken to that have kind of experienced it. So. Yeah, sure. Like, I mean, it's not a worry about it. I think most people experience it at least once. Mm. So you just have to that to forward to. <laughs> yeah. But, um,. Frightening stuff, though, man. Yeah, so that's what kind of made, you know, I kind of put that to, to the film. But um, there is a subsequent attack in her bathroom, um, which I think is particularly horrific. Uh, and again, it's not necessarily graphic, but just the way that she's kind of thrown about the room and her arms thrown above her and she's kind of, you know, her face is kind of mushed into the... Um, the bathroom, uh, you know, the shower curtain. I found that really, really disturbing. What did you think of that scene? Yeah, it was the most brutal in the movie for me. I think, and you know, like some of them, yeah. it's like you know, like violent, you know, images of rape. You know, like her legs parting, and you know, are being thrust against the mirror, and like you know, suffocated with the shower curtain. But that was really like, disturbing. I agree, and I think yeah, it's. The scene in the film, I think you truly felt more than the other ones, which is saying something because they were all pretty, you know, hard. Yeah, I mean, and coming back to the kind of notion of the incubus, um, do you think that the entity kind of, obviously it seems to be distinctly male, but that there's kind of parallel there with domestic abuse and the way that it's taking control over her life? I mean, Mike, what, did you read anything like that into the film? I felt like the, the the entity itself was kind of the epitome of male kind of dominance and violence over women, you know, with the with the rape and with I like you said with the taking control over her driving and stuff. It was really the epitome of the worst kind of male on female violence that happens, and that, as I said earlier, that's what makes it really human. And it kind of hits home more than a lot of other supernatural. Uh, films do yeah no no i i would kind of agree with that and i think uh, the domestic abuse slip parts you know really prevalent in the final scene as well which we will get to later but i definitely think that's a theme which you know we can discuss later because like you know the final you know words in the movie are very very you know like you know like well it's like welcome home cunt yeah. So, you know, she's returning, you know, to her, you know, well, you know, her patriarch in a way, and she can't escape it because, like, she's stuck in that situation. Yeah. And she keeps returning to the abuse, so it's definitely got that aspect. No, no, I completely agree um, with that, but 
kind of coming back to the uh, psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Snyderman, she's going back and forth to him all this, um, during all of this time. And there is a panel of, um, you know, of the psychiatrist. She has to relay her story to them. And there is one woman, and this is what I was talking about before in terms of the, the key female characters. And um, when she's questioning her, she actually makes a comment and says um, that, you know, how would you be affected as a woman if this entity was not to show you any interest anymore? And why do you think he's, you know, interested in you? And she actually says, maybe he thinks I'm attractive. Um, and it's basically making a comment about her kind of sexual ego and that because of a trauma, whatever, that she is kind of inviting this... Um, you know, false um, sense of, I don't know, you know, sexual attack, whatever, that she's making that up so that she feels better as a woman about herself because something wants her, some body wants her. And when she leaves the room, they're all talking about her in a very kind of belittling way and saying, you know, um, she's masturbating. Um, it's a case of unresolved psychological, um, you know, memory um, our issue and this is just manifesting as um, anxiety or hallucination and basically saying that women can't talk about masturbation can't talk about sex they can't be um, sexual in that way did you find that kind of discussion interesting at all because for me it's like one of the key scenes it is I think it it also begins one of the other conflicts in the film which is the the conflict between quote-unquote legitimate science and supernatural research you know so they're they're coming up with their own theories that are all conventional and they're going to explain everything naturalistically and that sets up that thread you know with ron silver and his his people and then as she starts to look for other answers other help it's going to put that in conflict with um other explanations for it I think it's also, you know, like, you know, it touches in like Stockholm syndrome and like trauma bonds, which, you know, I think is like one of the core themes of film as well, which like well, that psychiatrist thinks she's going through as well, you know, like, from like their textbook like, analysis. But, you know, I think like, you know, Dr. What's he called again? Snyderman. Oh, Snyderman, yeah, I think he's, you know, more leaning towards, you know, the separate supernatural element but try to define it in a scientific way yeah he's definitely kind of fighting her corner in that scene and it's um the um dop who um the name escapes me but i believe he worked with brian de palma um later on on the untouchables and he um uses a deep focus throughout so we kind of get images um, I noticed that a lot. Lots of deep focus scenes where someone's face is in the extreme foreground, yeah. and then there's a little bit of a blur in the middle ground, and you see someone in focus at the in the the background, over and over and over again. And you're right. I'm I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but um, Snyderman is defending her in that scene against that panel of people. Yeah, no, he is. I, but I'm sorry. I'm kind of I'm kind of muddling your point here because you, you you spoke about those two things the dynamics in that room you know the ex the explanation in there and then you were going into the the thing about the dp and the, the 
photography. So I'll let you kind of parse that out. Sorry. No, no, not at all. Sorry. Um, the cat, were you? Oh, I was just going to say, I got the impression he was definitely in her corner. At least in that scene, you know. Yes. I mean, his methods are particularly aggressive in a way because, um, it's after the shower scene and she shows him the bruises and she says that she feels like there were two smaller entities holding her legs um, and her arms and then there was one um, larger one that actually raped her and he makes the comment that she has three children, two small girls and her son obviously and he's older and he makes those accusations that she has incestuous feelings for him and Again, like I said, this apparently there was a scene cut from the film because that was too um, kind of explicit in how, you know, in, in the discussions. It, but I mean, it's quite, you know, they infer it here. And I, I don't know. What did you make of that? I think there's definitely an element that, you know, of like the reversal of Oedipus complex going on, which is like, I think that's noticeable you know in the first scene where like she goes out of the like um garage when like her son's there and you maybe before like unless you've seen it like a couple of times you know you could maybe get the impression that like she looks at him as a boyfriend yeah i thought the same thing actually yeah, that's so really I'd, interesting because yeah. i didn't pick that up at all yeah well not the first time well that was my second time watching it before the show and i hadn't seen it about you know since I was a kid. So I'd forgot quite a lot. And like, when you see her, like, you know, I mean, he was a teenager, but he definitely looked older as well. Like, she didn't, like, you know, look much older than him. And you see it, so you can definitely believe that they were in a relationship. The whole way it's handled, you know, it's got, a, you know, kind of, it's provocatively, you know, sexual, but understated. Yeah, and how she gets kind of really close to him when they're talking in yeah. that opening scene. I don't know. I didn't pick up on that at all. I just, like I say, I, I just kind of thought that they had a very close relationship. But that's really interesting, though, that it's like three, well. Yeah, it could be that, that it could be just a, a directorial choice to keep it like slightly ambiguous in the beginning because yeah. it's going to have, uh, it's going to resonate later when that discussion comes up. I mean, in all fairness, I just assume that incest always got to happen in movies. I go unprepared, so. <laughs> but she's then. Um, attacked again in her home in front of her children and um that one caught me off guard yeah that's a great thing i did not think that the entity would attack in front of the children that's what makes this movie so effective is that you're trying to figure out what are the rules here you know where can it attack what is the situation going to be and you assume it's going to be when she's alone in her bedroom uh, but it's, it happens in different locations. It happens in a car. It happens at a friend's place, and and you, and so it, it raises the stakes and the, the sense of danger. And you're trying to figure out what are the rules. This, is this something that's just like attached to her personally? Um, you know, how does that function? It, it's really good that way. Yeah, it kind of you know keeps you literally end of your seat, doesn't it? Because you don't know when it's going to happen. Um, but I mean, this particular um, attack in front of the children, something actually manifests when her son tries to um, help her 
and there's a kind of electrical discharge that we see and you know his um wrist is broken as he's thrown backwards and the actor who was playing um the character he actually broke his wrist in the scene funnily enough wow um, <laughs> and um I just wanted to kind of ask at this point what you thought of the effects because we have some very interesting effects when she, like I say, is being molested and is that kind of um, the entity is kind of playing with her breasts. Um, and then is this, like I say, this kind of electrical manifestation and then we have some effects later on. Um, just what you thought overall, if you thought they held up? I thought they were very good. I thought the... Um the electrical stuff was very good. It was um, obviously like some kind of composite of, I think, some real electrical discharge that was superimposed. And the other stuff where you're seeing her being, you know, her her f- flesh being pressed and, you know, uh, her being groped and everything, that was all Stan Winston. Stan Winston, the great effects master who went on to do Terminator and Jurassic Park. Um, he did all of that elaborate prosthetic work and it, I thought that was a very risky decision cause it could have, that could have come off comical, that whole scene later on where her, um, boy, who was it? Her boyfriend? Um, the, the guy that's the guy yeah. who played Mo Green and the Godfather, um, yeah. is, um, that whole scene, the whole thing was very risky, but, uh, and, and the effects, cause it could have inspired laughter. I thought, you know, anyway, those are my three cents. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that all the, uh, special effects, like they look convincing. They're, they're not bad effects, but what I really liked about the first half of the film, like the first hour, 45 minutes or so was that it was a very dark human, supernatural horror film it was more of a character piece more than anything and that surprised me and i loved it but i i I really liked that it wasn't this big poltergeist special effect extravaganza and that's what i thought this second half kind of turned into when they bring in all the special effects to me the movie got really silly yeah i'm i'm with mike i thought the effects were you know good they served a purpose and they hold up pretty well but, you know, I preferred it when it was more, you know, ambiguous and, you know, there was the element you're questioning where it was real or was it, you know, you know, all in her head. Basically, even though you've seen it happening, you know, that could, you know, have been from her point of view. But then, you know, that happened and, you know, the entity attacks her son. And then that's when it was, you know, confirmed it was definitely happening. But I preferred it as, you know, like a, you know, ambiguous, like, character piece. Yeah, and I think because um, that leads us nicely on to basically she's avoiding going home, avoiding Dr. Snyderman after he's made these accusations um, about her and her son. And she's around at her friend Cindy's. She's about to go out and she's just going to stay there for a bit. And that's when basically all of the windows are blowing in and Cindy and her husband witness everything. And, you know, she basically says, I believe you, I've seen it. So the whole film then turns into... Um, a supernatural tale and it could have very easily like um karen said have um straddled that line between the two and not have actually made a decision which i I, in a way i'd have preferred but i don't know i I still think it's effective yeah i would agree that it is effective like i don't know it, it really worked for me i i think that some films definitely 
do straddle that line really well, but it was nice to sort of see this film go a specific direction and stick with it. And I think for this particular film, it really works. Yeah, Yeah, because it's going to go into that territory like uh, the movie Poltergeist goes, where she's going to bring in the investigators. So at some point, you have to have this, um, you have to establish that something is real and other people believe it beyond her. But even the way they handled it kept it a little bit ambiguous. Like it was just on the edge of someone seeing enough to believe, you know, like when her girlfriend and the husband came back, when I was seeing that, I was wondering if the the husband, he, for all he knew, Barbara Hershey trashed their place. And, uh, but the girlfriend saw enough to believe her. I just thought that was very well handled. Carla actually is in a local bookshop, and this is when she meets the two parapsychologists who she convinces to visit her home. And though they're initially skeptical, they suddenly, and this is the kind of hammy point for me, they literally walk into the house. She's telling them about, you know, where everything is. Um, it reminded me of um, Insidious, actually, which in a way seemed to be a little bit of a parody of this. And um, straight away, when they walk past, um, a mirror that you know the kind of unit underneath it trembles with the mirror they experience a cold spot and they kind of smell um a foul odor so within seconds they you know they kind of experience all of that yet nothing manifests and she actually laughs because they've seen it and she's making them coffee and it's just a complete turn from the rest of the film that one scene in isolation just doesn't quite work for me yeah there's a couple of inconsistent notes throughout the film that i noticed too where it makes well, you wonder why they would react that way or if there was a leap in logic. They basically set up equipment in her house and, um, you know, want to do some experiments with her. And they actually see the entities that manifest above her bed. Again, that kind of electrical, um, you know, surge. And she mentions that it's weak here. And I couldn't understand why it was suddenly weak. Did you? Kind yeah, of pick well, that, that, that was one of them. Yeah, this yeah. is what, why is it, what's the mechanism for it being weak? And it just seems, I didn't quite get that either. Yeah. Yeah, so that was like the first kind of instance. And um, this is when kind of Dr. Snyderman appears. And just kind of touching on your points um, from a little bit earlier, he actually has a word with her son and says, do not go with her you know, whatever she's saying, don't go with it just to kind of, because she's your mom. So that kind of pulls you back into the fact of, well, are we just kind of seeing what they, they're all imagining because the mom is acting in that way. So again, that could have gone either way with, even though it did show that kind of electrical discharge, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Even though you have yeah, the they effects, were, he, it still yeah, could have. He's still theorizing about, what is it, group uh, hallucination or group psychosis? What's the terminology? Mass hallucination or... Yeah. Um, yes. And that, yeah, she's basically, her, you know, hysteria is affecting her family. I mean, her children are obviously impressionable anyway um, because they're, you know, they're only kiddies. It's the mum. They're going to, you know, believe whatever she's saying. But, you know, that's when he has a word with... Um, with her son, Billy, because he's 16, so you don't go along with it. And Billy says at that point, I saw it, it is real. And yeah. this is when um, Carla's boyfriend, Jerry, um, comes back. And we've said he was a bit of a dick. He's a lot older than her. Um, he's away all the time. 
it seems a very strange relationship. I'm not quite sure what she gets out of it. Um, but basically, he ignores all of her, you know, talk about, you know, she mentioned she's been raped and he can't get his head around it. But he just kind of brushes off all of what she's saying. He doesn't sit down and actually listen to her. And, you know, he's bought a kind of sexy underwear or something. And he's like, oh, go and put this on for me. And when he walks into the bedroom, she's being attacked. And again, it's quite... Um, it's quite brutal. She's just on the bed and she can't move. And again, that bit um, reminded me of kind of sleep paralysis. And she's saying to him, can you help me, help me? And he's just stood there. He won't do anything. He eventually grabs a chair, goes to smack the invisible entity. And obviously her son walks in at that point because he's heard the disturbance, believes that he's attacking her mum. So we get this, you know, chaotic scene. Um, and she's actually hospitalised. And... Jerry is so disturbed, you know, um, Dr. Snyderman has a bit of a discussion with him, but he says, you know, I could have taken anything he said, you know, cancer, whatever, but not this. And I thought that was a really, you know, like I said, it's very clever in terms of the dialogue. It's very realistic in the film for me. Yeah, a lot of people are afraid of mental illness, and I think that's really what he thought it was. Yeah. Did you guys get that? Well, I, I, no, I got, I got that he believe that something supernatural supernatural was going on and he says i would have married her but but not this but he does say words to the effect that there was some entity there yeah yeah and I, again i think his tying into you know if it, the film would have been a little bit more subtle in in its approach he you know you can read that both ways you, you're not quite sure what he believes or what he saw um, there, but I just wanted to ask what you thought about how he relates to the haunting or the psychological issue. I thought uh, she wasn't helping matters. She was being very, very coy, afraid to be very direct about what it was, saying that she was attacked, but, you know, he reacts to that very much, but then she sort of uh, tempers that by saying, but no one was there. And so he shows concern in a way, but and, and she's being so coy about it that it's not really helping him understand. Yeah, I mean, I understand that, but I mean, he just didn't, I mean, he says to her, um, I thought you were really attacked, and for a minute there you had me worried. You know, he's he's not listening to what she's saying, so I think she feels mm -hmm. like she can't actually um, say anything to him. You know, at one point she says, take me with you, when he's going, because he's absent all the time. Um, always away so she's very much on her own and she says to him at this point which I thought was quite important the whatever it was the attacks they started when you went away this is her reacting you know you know being frustrated or not looking for that you know special like someone you know maybe she's got you know, well the relationship comes across as like you know quite neglectful as well so maybe it's just manifesting what like, a more extreme form because it's all she's used to yeah and again her with her you know, her psychological trauma that that's kind of come out at that point because she can't handle, you know, doing the kind of working, training to be a typist, looking after the children, being on her own, whatever. Um, but I just thought that was quite interesting. And coming back to the kind of technical aspects, we've mentioned the deep focus. So you have the foreground um in focus and you know like um anthony said you have characters faces and then you have action in the background um as well and that's 
you know, why did you think that he kind of took that approach in so many scenes to kind of capture those different layers of action? I don't know. It reminded that's one of the big things that reminded me of De Palma a lot because I, De Palma does that a lot in his movies, and it just added to the. I don't know why, but that adding that kind of De Palma ish element really added a dark atmosphere to it. But as for a directorial choice as to why he did it, I I don't know, and I kept think I kept wondering why he did that. Yeah, I mean, we get some really unusual kind of canted or tilted angles, like on the street when she stood outside her house, she doesn't want to go in at one point, um, early on in the film, and the street itself is tilted, and we get very high angles at one point behind somebody as they're sat in a chair, um, very unusual angles that just kind of throw you off, and even if you're not quite aware of them, if they're not that extreme, um, even in like the the, the meeting with the kind of panel of psychiatrists, you have that kind of deep focus, but you also have a very kind of slightly canted angle. So it just throws everything off in the film. It just always doesn't feel quite right. And um, I'm not sure if that gets progressively um, more acute in terms of the angles as the film goes on in her. Um, I, th- I think so. You remember that one scene where she walks into her door to the house and the camera angle is directly from overhead so it kind of conveys that idea of like, you know, is something there watching her, you know, it increases a feeling of her vulnerability. Yeah, the vulnerable, I definitely say that as, you know, the kind of narrative progresses, she literally has nowhere to go until the parapsychologists come. But then they suddenly, and again, this is the kind of flaky areas of the plot, um, kind of. Uh, touching on again but you know the entity appears manifests whatever and they manage to capture it on film and it's kind of a green kind of fog that looks a bit like Slimer from Ghostbusters um and that then convinces the uh the parapsychologists to conduct uh, an experiment in which um a full mock-up of um, Carla's home is created. And I'm not sure why they needed that, considering, you know, it's followed her to different places, like we said. But um, liquid helium was um, to be used to freeze the entity once inside. Um, and she would basically, Carla, lock herself in kind of a safe area as the, um, the, the liquid helium was kind of dispersed. Um, and Dr. Snyderman tries to infiltrate the um the experiment and at one point physically removes her from the house like tries to drag her out of this mock-up which I thought was really interesting in terms of the gender dynamics that we, he's like literally trying to save her um and you know she wants to stay and the entity of course arrives eventually and then takes control of the liquid helium jets and uses them against her as she's kind of running around a kind of like you know mouse in in a maze, really. What did you think of that scene and how it kind of turned on its head? Man, this whole... Can we just talk about how stupid of a plan this was? <laughs> okay, so we're going to build this whole set of her home in our lab upstairs to create a comforting environment for the rape ghost to, to, to trick it to get here. So then she's going to be in there, but we've established that the ghost goes in there and it pins her down so she can't run. So what the plan is to run away from the invisible ghost and then we're going to shoot it with this liquid helium 
Which leads to this big, stupid finale of, of the ghost taking control of these giant guns and shooting her as she runs around the house. It was all just, it was so goofy. I, I thought it was dumb. And then it, they capture it in this big sculpture that explodes. And yeah, it was all just really silly to me. It was really, like, I think the whole second hour is silly. But this last, like, 20, 25 minutes is to me where the movie was bad. Like, th- this is a, this whole finale is bad. I thought it was quite cool though because it was just it was reminding me of what you know what our general color schemes. So I was more focused on that than anything else. I thought this this is visual eye candy right now. I hear what Mike's saying. I but I, I went with it at that point. They they had me sufficiently where I was willing to go along with it. Uh, I ha- it raises a lot of questions. All the questions that Mike mentions are legitimate, and I'm thinking the same thing. But I, I was willing to just yeah. deal with it. Yeah, it was the same for me as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They're in a quite silly territory, I think. But, you know, yeah, it's, I still thought it was quite effective. Yeah, I can see what Kieran's saying. It's quite stylized at that point. Um, and we get this kind of strange um, scene where she's being told to get to the safe zone and she's taking ages to get there. And when she does, um, basically the entity, you know, breaks down the door and you know she's trapped and she turns around and kind of has a bit of a um a monologue and she says you know you do what you want with me i'm not running anymore um you know you can have my body you can touch me whatever you can kill me but you can't have me and again i thought that really related back to the domestic abuse aspect um and at this point um dr snyderman does rush in and save her as um, everything kind of explodes and they look back and they can see the entity frozen for a brief period in um, a large mass of ice um, which again was quite strange and the ice kind of breaks apart and you know we assume that it vanishes and you know do you get from this that Dr. Snyderman realizes she was telling the truth or do you think he just thinks this is a strange experiment and it's just formed a lot of ice? Well he was a giant douchebag so he was probably convincing himself that none of the that there was that there was no supernatural element because he was so adamant about that the whole movie to the point of being just a dick. <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice if they had resolved his, whether his uh, unbelief, you know, changed, but they didn't really do that. I think he believed her. You know, I think the fact he was trying, like, you know, he like went, like he mentioned at the scene, like, you know, with our psychiatrist, like, you know, they suggested, you know, she was masturbating and they immediately like, disproved that. I think he'd, like, probably worked up, you know, every possible, like, you know, problem there was. And he didn't come to a conclusion. So I think he was, like, you know, he did start to, you know, believe her in the end. Yeah, we get that kind of extended scene of him in the library looking up stuff, um, you know, at the beginning. But um, here we do get the... Um, somebody high up in the university who is contacted by uh, Snyderman and he goes down to look at the experiment and he sees all of this and the um, parapsychology uh, professor, the the lady again, like I said, the kind of third main female character uh, that believes her throughout, um, she actually says to him, you saw it, you were a witness. And he says, I didn't see anything. And she says, oh, you bastard. And he's the one that, is really we don't really get that information from 
um, Snyderman, whether he believes it or not, but we kind of get it reflected in this kind of authoritative figure in a way. You see a guy who is, he's rattled by the experience, but, you know, in his core, he's a political animal and he's just not going to admit to this and, and what the ramifications would mean at the university. Completely. And again, that's like straight back to female hysteria. And, you know, just that catch-all world, she must be crazy, you know, because we can, um, you know, like you say, it's the university, it's the reputation, they don't even want to touch it, they don't want to go there. And Yeah, well, and, and Becky, what's interesting is that the female, um, you know, the um, lead paranormal researcher, she was very, she's a female, but she was very, very stoic and cynical and unbelieving about the whole thing until she was persuaded. Yes, and interestingly, I think you could say that the way that she's presented physically, I mean, she's quite masculine in her appearance, um, as is the um, psychiatrist, the female psychiatrist in the panel. You know, there are no other kind of effeminate kind of, traditionally, let's say, women, you know, like that look like uh, Barbara Hershey. You know, th- these women who are quite stocky, slightly older, and they have, like, very short haircuts, they... They do look quite, if not androgynous, they look quite masculine. Yes. And that was just interesting in regards to that woman's comment, the psychiatrist's comment about Barbara Hershey's kind of sexuality and how she needs to be considered beautiful. You know, women can't have one or the other. They have to have one or the other. You know, it's either a career and a a brain. Right, right. Kind of a binary choice to be feminine or, or... or not, yeah. Yeah. And it's cool. Um, I, I kind of read anyway. Um, but Carla then returns to the house the next day. Um, she just kind of seems to have accepted the situation. Um, the front door slams by itself and she's greeted by a demonic voice that terrifies me every time I hear it. Um, and, you know, the voice says, welcome home, cunt. So again, that, you know, just kind of um, reifies like, what we've been saying about how this experiment, whatever, in the way that it's kind of received by authority figures and, um, you know, that kind of gender dynamic, that this is, she's not believed at the end of the day. She she isn't believed and she's kind of stuck in the same situation. She can't get out of it. Yeah, that's what I took from it as well. Yeah, I think it also goes back to the point of, you know, domestic abuse. Like, she's just returning to her abuser. You know, like, it seems like that's her got to be stuck in a cycle, like, long after the film ends as well. It's like yeah. she's just, like, jumping into it because it's became her, like, norm. I definitely. I mean, and if you're really, like, looking at metaphorical readings, you know, in terms of, like, feminism, it's kind of, for me, you know, you can read it as, in terms of patriarchy and, you know, Western society that, you can try all you want. You can try and have a voice. You can try and talk about, you know, the problems um, in relation to that kind of subjugation and those dynamics. But women are always going to be, they're not going to be equal to men. So. It also seems like a film as well, you know, where she feels maybe like, you know, shackled by, you know, her, you know, her role as a woman. You know, like she's got that desire to break free, but, you know. She can't quite do it, and then like when you even like it, see all the other like, women in the film that have like you know, just seem to be like limiting her options at what she can be as a woman. 
Yeah. And you know, their perception about women, I definitely think it touches on that. And, you know, I think she's like, you know, led to believe that, you know, that's all she can be. But, but you know, like, you know, this societal, like, you know, you know, like, unwritten law, basically. I think she's, like, definitely subjugated by, you know, like, preconceived notions. Yes. And that, again, for me, comes back to the mirrors and, you know, that kind of fracturing and duplicity um, in that, you know, you can be a career woman like the the professors, the female psychiatrist and the parapsychologist, but, you know, you can't be the young, pretty um woman the effeminate woman the sexual woman you, you know your career woman are your sexual it's very much kind of giving you one aspect um of you know femininity whatever you want to call it um you can't have everything and so i think it all kind of touches on that but we get a closing disclaimer um to say that carla and her family moved to texas where she still experiences the attacks for uh, from the being, but they've actually lessened in frequency and severity. Did you think that, you know, with this kind of little reference at the end, that that was needed? Maybe it suggests, you know, as she's getting older, she's becoming like less sexually attractive, and you know, I don't know when he's on me, maybe by knowing for somebody else. Interesting, actually, I didn't think of that. Yeah, I just and made you... that up there. <laughs> <laughs> and did you think the film held up, and it, did you think it was scary, even? Uh, I thought it lost its way. Like, uh, overall, it's a good film, you know, but it's stronger, you know, the first half, as Mike was saying. I think it just kind of, like, descends into, like, typical genre tropes. But I think it's held together, you know, by a really, really good leading performance. And it still, you know, the the themes are still, you know, pretty prevalent throughout. But there are just scenes where, you know, I think it takes, like, you know, the the typical cop-out of a supernatural film just to, like, you know, follow the same formula. But I do think it's better than most of them. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there. And uh, kind of on top of that, um, if we go into ratings, um, Anthony, do you want to give your ratings? I'd give it a 7 out of 10. I thought, for reasons I mentioned earlier, that the film kept me guessing. It went into unexpected places, the rules of the film were not predictable. I liked the segues. It went into uh, poltergeist territory, with you know where it transitions into have, having the paranormal investigators in her house. Um, just you know, very good overall. The third act is a little controversial, whether that works or not. It, it does raise a lot of questions. There's a few inconsistent notes, but I, I liked it. I just it didn't uh, feel like a clone of things I've seen before. It 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 had overtones. It had elements that I've seen before, but it it kept me guessing, and I enjoyed it. And the um, cat. Oh, I think I'm going to be at about a seven point five for this. I really enjoyed it, but you know, as we mentioned, it does have a few issues, but I think it's well put together. It's well acted. I enjoyed the music. And, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a peg above most of these supernatural films. So, um, I mean, I would definitely say you should at least rent it. But, yeah, 7.5 for me. So we're kind of um, on the same track there. Mike? Something we didn't mention is that this movie is uh, two hours and five minutes long, which uh, it goddamn does not need to be. This movie... <laughs> Because 
the first hour, I didn't mind this the slow pace, and I was looking forward to a two-hour movie because I thought it was very human. I thought the terror was very real for something that was supernatural. I thought a lot of the the rape scenes were really well done, and I thought that there were jump scares without having a loud noise, you know, because they're shocking moments, like when Alex Rocco walks out of the bathroom and she's being molested on the bed, or when she gets attacked in front of her family. Stuff like that was genuinely kind of horrifying to me. Uh, I love the cast. I think Alex, as I mentioned, the late Alex Rocco, makes even he makes a very small appearance, and he has powerful moments. Barbara Hershey is fantastic here as this fractured character. She She's amazing. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Silver. Um, Ron Silver. Silver. Yeah, he, I mean, his character was annoying, but he's great in it. He, he does a fantastic job, as always. I, I love Ron Silver. And I think it's a very human, dark horror film. But then you get that second hour, and it just gets silly to me. It feels like a completely different movie. It gets boring, it gets dumb. There's a lot of the rules, as we mentioned earlier, don't really make sense. That leads up to a finale that I thought was downright stupid. And it just kind of ended. And I was like, okay, is it is it finally over now? I just wanted it to end so badly because it kept losing points by the second. I'm still shockingly going to come out with by you guys, though. Uh, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 just because I feel like the things that it does well, it really does very very well like superbly well it's just a shame that that second hour is it is so not good as as it is it's a shame but the first hour is fantastic okay let's see if karen can kind of keep that going what are you gonna give it uh yeah i'll give it a six because i do think it's you know it's got its effective moments it sounds like the scores look really effective. You know, the performances are great. Um, you know, it's very, very, like, you know, it packs more of a punch than most our supernatural movies. But I think it just becomes, like, far too, like, formulaic. And, you know, like, you know, very much in the vein of, like, Poltergeist and everything else. And, like, you've got the director who's, like, you know, totally dismissed it as, like, a horror film. But, you know, it just ended up, you know, like applying like standard genre tropes of like every other movie of like a similar elk. But yeah, it's good, it's watchable. Uh, but you know it's probably better most of the like movies in a similar vein that come out at that time, but then I think you know, it's just a pretty conventional supernatural movie, which I've seen countless times. It's one of the better ones though, even though I gave it a six, I still do think it's one of the better ones. But yeah. Good movie, I'd recommend it, but you don't have to see it. Okay, well, I'm going to be a little more generous than everybody else, and I'm going to give it an 8. And um, I agree with everybody's points, but just for me, the kind of questions that it raises and the kind of how brutal it is, and like I say, it's not graphic at all, but it really does kind of stick with you. And even though... You know, you get that kind of, like I said, that dialogue between science and, you know, the supernatural, and it kind of goes down one route. It's clever enough in the way that it does it. The dialogue is fantastic, the characterization, the acting. Um, Barbara Hershey's kind of a tour de force. And, you know, even though it kind of deals with female hysteria, she's such a strong character that 
it's really, really um, fascinating to kind of just see her take on that role throughout the, the film, even though right at the end it does get a little bit silly and you do get those plot kind of holes. But I think it's a really important film and I think it's kind of very influential. So I think, yeah, I'm going to be getting it. So that seems to be everything for the entity. You know, we've got a fantastic segment from someone named Anthony Rotolo. Uh, it's got, I've, I'm always looking for a thematic tie-in. This one obviously involves sexual relations with an entity, and I was able to find that. I had written a review about a year ago, and I'm, I've recorded that for you. It, this is the telefilm called The Haunted from 1991. It's about the Smurl family, and this is based on one of those books by Ed and Lorraine Warren, the, the folks who did Amityville Horror and The Conjuring. So, jury's out on whether you believe it or not, but... I hope you enjoy the segment. Well, hi, friends. This is Anthony back with more TV Terror. Today, I want to tell you about a movie that tells the story of a kind of an Amityville junior among paranormal cases. It's 1991's The Haunted What does it want with us? It wants to kill you. The Haunted on Fox Night at the Movies, Friday. The Haunted relates the purported experiences of Jack and Janet Smurl, a married couple who find their family under attack by ghosts and a ringleader demon after moving into a duplex home with their daughters and elderly parents. As Haunted House movies go, this one breaks the mold of the group expedition format. You know, stories like The Haunting and The Legend of Hell House Instead, it favors a story with scope, the events taking place over a span of years and involving not just the unlucky clan, but their neighbors, their church, and finally, the media and a curious public. We follow the Smurls from the time they move into their Pennsylvania home and experience minor strangenesses. It begins with things like household objects going missing or wall stains that refuse to be painted over. But soon, voices are calling to Janet Smurl when no one else is home, and she hears whispers emanating from her pillow at night. The malevolence becomes unmistakable when a dark shape appears to Janet, and she is later levitated off of her bed. And in a scene that recalls Barbara Hershey's The Entity, Jack Smurl, played by Jeffrey DeMunn of The Mist, is raped by a powerful demon. And this aspect of sexual violation differentiates the Smurl case from other hauntings. Now, I'll warn you, this scene may scare you or it may inspire unintentional laughter. There's just something about the presentation of Jack Smurl being violated by this demon entity that'll go one way or the other. I'll leave it to you to decide. Now, Ed and Lorraine Warren, those self-styled demonologists, were famously and controversially associated with the cases that became the Amityville Horror, and The Conjuring films, and they figure prominently here. They're depicted in the film as they come to the aid of the Smurls after numerous exorcisms fail to expel the unwelcomed guests. Eventually, a book is written by the Warrens, which formed the basis of this telefilm. The difficulty with movies like this is that events feel random and episodic, and it's only the sense of escalation toward crisis 
that holds it all together. But in an age when CGI is overused, this film is kind of a breath of fresh air. It achieves its scares with modest effects, relying on story and suggestion and good old-fashioned sound design to generate an atmosphere of dread. Rumor has it that this film is held in high regard by James Wan, director of The Conjuring and Insidious. It's an easy recommendation for lovers of supernatural, ghost, and demon films. It's available on YouTube. Have you seen it? That's 1991's The Haunted. So thank you to Anthony for another TV terror segment there. And also um, a recommendation from Anthony, the podcast recommendation for this week is The Projection Booth, and that's who turned me on to it. In the world of film podcasting, it really doesn't get much better than uh, The Projection Booth. Basically, each episode is incredibly organised and detailed. There's an episode on um, Orson Welles' film The Magnificent Ambersons from 1942, and it took two years to plan and execute. So... um, it's just it's incredible like uh, most of the shows um that particular episode features interviews with people connected to the film and the highlight here being an interview with um well's daughter um, yeah. about the great man himself um and as anthony can attest to you know in addition to filmmaker and actor interviews the regular co-hosts um mike white and rob st mary are usually joined by special guest hosts who are connected in some way to the films being discussed and yeah they're fantastic yeah it doesn't it doesn't get more detailed does it really it's amazing it's there they've got to be the hardest working show out there because of that reason the research the the depth of research the um lining up interviews with writers directors um, so they they had, for example, they did uh, Star Trek uh, Wrath of Khan, and they interviewed Nicholas Meyer, the director. They, oh wow! They did um, they did an epic show on the movie Blowout. Do you guys know Blowout with John Travolta, yeah. Brian yeah, De Palma? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing movie. They have an epic show, and that one gets interesting because they have. Um, I think it was that one, but some of these shows they'll get different writers on who have like people who are involved with a project and they've got like different opinions on what happened. So you hear two different independent interviews and you get perspectives on it. Um, closer to home on horror. They did a great episode on let's scare Jessica to death, which is one of those off the beaten path films that everyone should watch. I'll, I'll say, <laughs> but they did a great show. Um, so I'm kind of painting the picture, right, Becky? You are indeed. Yes. I'm very glad you're on. <laughs> And um, they also have a cracking episode on the entity. Oh, I haven't watched, I haven't listened to that one yet. And, you know, uh, it's not horror, but everyone has to hear their Cabin Boy episode. Yeah, they're just, and the links as well in the, <laughs> on the website, you know, the links they put up to, to the films, uh, documentaries, oh, so much information. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Oh, hey, one more plug. I'm just on a roll here. I'm sorry. (laughs) They did a fantastic episode recently on Logan's Run, and they interview my my friend William F. Nolan, the author of Logan's Run, who I've had the privilege to work with on a few different projects. And they also have a wonderful interview with George Clayton Johnson, who recently passed away. And this is this has got to be one of his last interviews, if not his last interview. And he goes in depth on his experiences as a writer on the Twilight Zone and his career. Wonderful episode. So I just 
really want to make a special plug for that one. Definitely get a listen to that one. Yeah, I think you'll really love this one, Lucard. I really do. If there's a particular subject you're interested in, you know, you're going to get all of the, um, you know, the best reasons. It's very scholarly, isn't it, Anthony, in it terms is. of the discussion? Um, so, you know, like that that one on... I'm on your head, There's like an interview with UV Ball for outlets. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you can't top it. Like that Magnificent Ambersons episode is like... I don't think you're ever going to get anything as kind of in-depth and um, kind of... I see they've got Luke Wilson as well. I know there's a lot more, like, you know, prestigious guests in UV Ball, but he's like my favourite person. <laughs> I think he's I happy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot of opinions on UV Ball. I'll say that for him. <laughs> we should go on there. I will defend them to the death. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so, yeah, if you haven't checked this one out, then I'd say it should definitely be at the top of your list, the projection booth. Um, so the next episode will be the April special, I believe, which is covering the remaining films in the Hellraiser franchise. And we got up to uh, the fourth film last time, Bloodlines. So um, all the films after that, as well as some extra segments, I believe, on the books, comics, and even an interview with author Paul Kane um, about his fiction and non-fiction works concerning the Hellraiser universe. We would love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic or anything else horror-related. Uh, just please email your messages in MP3 format to United Nations of Horror at gmail.com or just drop us a line at its address. Um, and you can leave a voicemail with your comments on 404-480-2545. Uh, just let the number ring a few times and you'll be taken through to the voicemail. And just leave your name and where you're calling from. And um, you can also head over to the website for all the latest podcast information, articles and reviews, uh, mostly from Mike. And that's unitednationsofhorror.com. You can join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash UN of Horror. Um, and thanks to Lucard, Mike, Anthony and Kieran for joining me today. And to Anthony and Talisha for another cracky couple of segments. And until next time, you've been listening to the United Nations of Horror. First you say no, you got some plans for the night, and then you stop and say, All right, love is kind of crazy with a spooky little girl like you. Now, for us no, Americans, for us Americans, toward the end where you you talked about our cracking segments, you got to enunciate because it could sound like they're crappy segments. But uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you. It's this was a-, a lot of fun. That haunted movie is also in my notes. That's one like the dad gets raped by August. That one. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, yeah, the haunted. Yeah, the it's the father, yeah. right? The father gets yeah. raped. Yeah, someone told me that earlier because I posted in a group looking for recommendations about ghost rape movies, and someone said what message me to say what they had that in DVD, and it was the dad that got it. So that sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's Jack, the father. Oh, yeah, he gets raped. <laughs> it, it was like a year ago that I That's wrote this wild. up, so I was just <laughs> much a little sketchy on it. <laughs> Very cool. All right, well, we are ready to go whenever you guys are. So much ghost rape in this episode. <laughs> We're kind of rapey, you know? <laughs> Indeed. Please keep that quote in. Um, <laughs> oh, that's I our will. new slogan. Yeah, the, the new trailer. Um, <laughs> yes. United Nations of Horror. We're kind of rapey. <laughs> <laughs>